0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, how the hack of DigiNotar changed the internet forever, changing the way we think about security and hiding malware in a PNG. Plus a ton of your emails, a big roundup, and a packed 300th episode of TechSnap. Everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 300 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on January 5th, 2017. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should really go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us for 300 weeks without ever missing a beat is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Thanks hey, man. Welcome. Happy freaking 300, Alan. April 18th, 2011 is when we started this show. Yeah, and now it's 2017. I know. I, you know what, Alan? Part of me feels like, like one of my kids is graduating. Like, they're moving out of the house and going on to bigger yeah. and better things, starting their life. Like, it's like a it's like something we've been doing since 2011, Alan. I
1: know. You know, uh, I think almost everything else in my life has changed since 2011.
0: <laughs> yeah. Same you here, know. man. <laughs> Big time. You know, I started in my garage.
1: I was doing this show in my garage when we started. Yeah, and, and I was in my apartment. Yeah. And then I bought a house. I uh, quit working at the college. I, yeah. Right. You, you know, were still at the college back, back went full time.
0: Yeah. Right. That's really something. That is really something. And we celebrate it with the exclusive Patch Your Shit t-shirt. Still available. It has tips now. So they are shipping. So you can get one. Available till January 13th. Teespring.com slash Patch Your Shit. It's a classic now with tote bags and stickers. <laughs> yep. Oh, and the hoodie. The hoodie actually right now would be nice because it's like when I woke up this morning, it was 15 degrees and I think it's like 19 degrees out here now. So it's a hoodie would be the perfect for this kind of weather. Alan. Now, we could have just, I suppose, phoned it in uh, for our last episode. For those of you that don't know, Alan and I are stepping down after this episode and being replaced by New Fresh Blood. Uh, Wes and Dan will be stepping in to take uh, our roles, and we're, we'll do a great job, I'm sure. And we thought, I thought for sure, I thought, nah, this is going to be the one. It's going to be the one. Alan's going to phone it in. We're not going to have anything prepared. And then I looked at our first story, and I, if I'm not mistaken— I think our it's as first, long as
1: some of our docs.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like four pages. The first story is like four pages of notes. So, yeah. <laughs> and not only that, but it touches on a story that goes back to the very beginning of TechSnap. Yep. So it's
1: kind of perfect, Alan. Where do we start? Yeah, it kind of wraps up. So yeah, uh, this is uh, how the hack of DigiNotar changed the infrastructure of the internet forever. Wow. So yeah, this goes back to TechSnap episode twenty-two from September eighth of twenty eleven. Uh, so that'd be like a just after my birthday uh, of the <laughs> first, uh, my first birthday on the show, basically.
0: Yeah, <laughs> um, six years ago, it was just in the first run of TechSnap.
1: Wow. Yeah, you know, we we basically only this is only our twenty second episode, and we were are still finding our feet. I think a mm-hmm. bit, and uh-huh. uh, uh, you know, I remember especially even just during the first ten weeks or so, TechSnap wasn't you know none none of the letters stood for security. Right. right. It was it was just gonna be the sysadmin podcast. That's we were very true. Sysadmin things. That's very true. Uh, but the stories that happened to keep coming up and the things people wanted the explanations for. Well, yeah. Uh, just yeah. kinda always leaned towards it was, you know, the Sony hack, the the Dropbox hack, and yeah. then Diginotar, and it's like everything. Cyber is cyber threat, cyber security,
0: cyber risk, cyber 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 Although, is
1: yeah, but back then cyber still meant
0: Exactly. That's my point. Like this show has watched the transition of that term is watched how this how it's gone from not an industry where guys like me were contractors doing penetration testing for companies. And now it's it's there's companies like FireEye out there. I mean, it has Mm -hmm. blown up as an entire industry. It's been really something to watch.
1: Yeah. You know, penetration testing. It's all went from being undervalued to being, uh, you know, startup valued at a billion dollars.
0: Yes. (laughs) It's very well put. Yeah. And did you know Tar so, was kind of right there for it all? <laughs> this, and it's one of the first ones that, st- that people really took interest in too. It was yeah. one of these stories where like Google got involved.
1: There was a lot of like people going, what, 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 what just happened? Exactly. So um, on Saturday, August 27th, 2011, an Iranian man who just wanted to uh, log into his Gmail uh, found he couldn't connect to Gmail. But the problem disappeared when he connected to a VPN that disguised his location. Mm. Uh, Whatever was going on, it it seemed to only affect computers in Iran. So uh, his first hunch was that the problem was uh, somehow tied to the Iranian government, Mm -hmm. which is known for interfering with online activities or, you know, or it might have been a problem with his ISP. So uh, the user posted a question about the issue on the Google help forum. Two days later, Google responded to this uh, apparently small problem in a big way. It issued a public statement about the incident, attributing the problem to a security issue at a Dutch company called DigiNotar. Within a month, DigiNotar had been taken over by the Dutch government. Long after that, it declared bankruptcy and was dissolved. Yeah. You know, cybersecurity breaches don't usually spell the end of companies, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have, was it, uh, Sony, Target, uh, Home Depot, Uh <laughs> You know, in yeah. uh, all these other places. Uh, so, yeah, it's highly unusual that, you know, being hacked in, involves a company going out of business, uh, much less spurring national governments to seize control of private firms. But the DigiNotar compromise was unusual in many ways. Usually, the cybersecurity incidents we read about involve a company failing to protect the information entrusted to it by users. But DigiNotar was different. Its whole reason for existing was to be able to tell internet users who and what they could trust. And in 2011, it failed spectacularly at that mission. And this sparked a radical shift in the way a lot of things are done on the internet. Um, you know, Suddenly, the archaically maintained list of certificate authorities mm-hmm. started to be scrutinized. Yeah. That list, for a long time, had just come with your operating system and nobody even thought about it. Right. It was just a list that Microsoft made or, you know, that you got from uh, the Mozilla people uh, and you didn't really think about it. And, you know, is back then it often included like quasi government controlled agencies. You know, at some point it was like, well, we need a certificate authority for people to get, you know, from every different country. And a lot of those ended up being the governments of those countries. Uh, And that was fine for a while. And Mm -hmm. over the years, you know, after 2000 or so, it started to tend more towards, those being commercial entities, because, hey, certificates are something you can sell. Um, And because, you know, at some point, you know, does the Dutch government really trust what the, you know, Malaysian government says is okay? Uh, Right. And this was kind of part of the problem with the certificate authority system was, so here's a list of people we trust and anything they say goes uh, works fine if you can trust all those people. But, you know, if you're Malaysian, maybe you do or maybe you don't trust the Malaysian government, right? Right. But, you know, if you're a different country, how do you uh, decide what to trust?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you can you've also seen like uh, vendors of certain machines would sometimes insert their own systems into the list. Yep. So they'd be
1: like modified
0: versions.
1: A lot of yeah, that. Or was even, discovered. you know, even on Windows in particular, your domain controller uh, is added to the trust list as soon as you join the domain. Right. Mm-hmm. So that and that's. You know, the entire basis of Active Directory is that trust relationship. Uh, so now we needed a better way to police the actions and procedures of these certificate authorities because the security of almost all of our systems depend on them, right? Mm-hmm. We use that to for online banking. We use it to make sure that the updates we're downloading for our operating system are legitimate. Uh, you know, all these other things. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: Actually, I think like so- uh, in the case of iOS too, they even check – before the app launches on iOS. Like, it actually checks the validity of the certificate of the app developer before the app starts on the platform.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it that can. happens with signed executables on Windows as well. Uh, you, know, you know, when you get that UAC pop-up and it says the company's name, that's because it looked at the certificate.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: you know, in the, you notice the pop-up looks different if it doesn't have a certificate. And uh, it actually, most people have never seen it, but it looks even different uh, when it's a revoked certificate. Uh, So, yeah, the point of the certificate authority is to certify with authority (laughs) that the system you're connecting to actually belongs to your bank and not the Russian mafia Mm -hmm. and, you know, whatever the certificate's for. But in general, in HTTPS, what it's used for is that the website you're talking to proves via being certified by this authority that they are actually the real PayPal or the real your bank or the real Google and not somebody pretending to be them. Because mm-hmm. without that, you know, anybody can pretend to be anybody. You know, if if, if you're on, if you can intercept somebody's connection, say, because it's on Wi-Fi, or, you know, you can splice into Ethernet cable or whatever, yeah, yeah. then you can make it so when they go to a website, they get a phishing version of that website. Mm-hmm. Even though they typed in the right domain, used a bookmark or whatever, you can do that. Mm-hmm. But HTTPS is what's supposed to prevent that.
0: Yeah. But anytime you're on somebody else's network and they can do that, you you know, you know always tell yourself, well, if I'm on public Wi-Fi at the coffee shop, well, I'm using SSL. I'm fine. I'm using HTBS everywhere I go. Okay. <laughs> this is an example of where that wouldn't have protected you potentially.
1: Yeah. So your browser or operating system usually gives you them this authority, right? They mm-hmm. Basically, there's a root trust store that's built into your browser or your operating system. And it Provides the list of authorities that are trusted. And then those authorities can subdelegate to other, uh, you know, in- intermediate authorities and issue certificates saying that we've checked and, yes, you know, that website is actually your bank, not somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're basically, uh, the certificate authorities are like countries and they're issuing passports. Hmm. Right, and it's saying that you know this passport says that the country of Canada certifies that that is actually Alan Jude and and not somebody else. Uh, right, and it's got a little picture instead of a fingerprint, or you know some of them actually do have fingerprints or whatever to to back that up. Uh, but you know, each country has to decide which countries they're willing to trust the passports from. You know, like in Canada, we 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 don't respect passports from Somalia. Mm-hmm. Like we, we don't really know who's the government there do they even issue passports are they legitimate it's like no if it's a passport from somalia we'd just be like sorry no <laughs> um and it's basically that list of what passports you'll trust is basically how the certificate authority system works on your browser and you know as we've seen you c- uh you can add things to that right so uh we've seen you know uh, lenovo at one point was adding a certificate authority to that trust yep Uh, And intercepting all uh, Google searches and injecting extra ads into them. Uh, Or, you know, companies have devices that do this so that they can uh, check for viruses going back and forth, uh, even in an encrypted connection. Or also, you know, make sure you're not doing things you're not supposed to do at work or whatever. Anyway. No. So, moving on. Uh, Five years later, the story of DigiNotar's uh, demise is all but forgotten, right? Yeah. imagine most people really hadn't thought about DigiNotar until I mentioned it a couple minutes ago. Yeah, uh, Eclipsed by a series of more recent, more easily understandable, and more exciting breaches, right? We've had hmm. you know, Target, Sony, uh, Ashley Madison, and all these other ones. Uh, but DigiNotar's case uh, has had long-standing impacts, uh, motivating some much-needed improvements in the security of our online trust infrastructure, including a new set of minimum security requirements that companies like DigiNotar and all the other certificate authorities uh, have to follow. Uh, That were announced earlier this month by the Certificate Authority Security Council. And also, uh, we've also covered in the past the work of the CA-B, which is the Certificate Authority Browser Forum, where... The certificate authorities in the browsers come up with, you know, the browsers say, all right, if you want to be on our trust store, here's the list of things you have to do. And you have to promise that after this date, you'll your any certificate you issue will be at least this strong because so, we're going to phase out the old, like anything based on MD5 or SHA-1 or less than uh, 2048 bits and so on. Uh, but things still happen, right? In 2005, or sorry, 2015, a root CA operated by the China Internet Information uh, Center Um, issued an intermediate certificate to one of its customers. That intermediate certificate was then used to issue certificates uh, that were used to perform man-in-the-middle attacks Mm -hmm. and potentially intercept traffic between users and websites. So they'd issue a fake certificate for Google, and uh, because they had the private key, they would be able to decrypt the traffic that your browser was encrypting between you and the fake Google, which they would then, you know, after... So you would connect to their fake Google... Uh, with an encrypted connection, but one they could decrypt, and then they would make the connection to real Google and pass the stuff back and forth. But they'd be able to see the unencrypted version of everything in the middle. Right. That's how a man in the middle works. Um, any one of these trusted CAs, whether they're a root CA or an intermediate CA, has been uh, that has been endorsed, can then issue certificates for any website they choose, even websites that chosen to buy their certificates from somewhere else. Right. So Google buys the certificates from VeriSign or somebody, uh, but you know. It, that doesn't stop the Chinese uh, CA from issuing certificates for them, uh, which can be a bad thing. Uh, so to address this, there's been a push for a system called Certificate Transparency, where every certificate, as it's issued by these CAs, is pushed into immutable logs kept by third parties. You know, one of them is kept by Google. Um, so Google Chrome began using Certificate Transparency, For all newly issued extended validation certificates, that's the one that turns the bar green. Mm -hmm. So they've made certificate transparency a requirement for the green bar ones. So if Google Chrome sees a certificate that doesn't uh, show up in any of its logs as ever being issued, it automatically rejects it. Even though it's a valid certificate from a certificate authority. Because if the certificate authority isn't willing to publicly admit that they issued that certificate, then is probably
0: not one we want to trust. You think that's something will be like a, will <clears throat> set a trend there?
1: Yeah. So I think th- at this point that's uh, because it's mandated by Google uh, to be trusted by Chrome. It's basically, every certificate authority that issues the extended validation certificates is like, going to have to do this, and so that means that Firefox and so on can follow suit. Um, and also, remember we talked about uh, when Symantec uh, screwed up and Google was like, "We're going to untrust you yep. unless you follow these new rules." Yep. yep. So. Uh, they've actually started requiring certificate transparency from all certificates newly issued by Symantec starting June 1st of 2016. After they found that uh, Symantec had issued 187 certificates without the domain odors even asking for those. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, mostly this came up because Symantec issued some bogus certificates, said they had revoked them all, and then Google found, uh, you know, 100 more of them. And, and it's like, well, obviously, Symantec, you're not very good at figuring out what you've actually done. So now, any certificate you don't publish to our public log proving that you made it, uh, then we're not going to accept it. Uh, and I think eventually we will require this of all certificate authorities. Um there's also an interesting tool. Uh, Komodo, one of the other uh, certificate authorities, has created a tool called uh, CRT.sh, which is the certificate search. It's a tool that you can go in and type in like a, a company's name or their domain name or some other fields in the certificate and search for any certificates that have been issued. Uh, so it combines a couple of things. I, it does the certificate transparency logs, but I think it also just combines logs uh, other projects like the, um, what's the EFF ones called, the... SSL. You're talking about observatory and a bunch of oh, other ones. I don't know. If so are. basically, it compiles lists of like every SSL certificate that's ever been seen and where it was seen. Um, so you can go in there and you can uh, type in a domain name and it'll show you, you know, we saw this certificate. It says it was issued at, uh, and valid for these date ranges and this is the first time we saw it and all these things. And it shows kind of how useful certificate transparency can be. Because one of the other important things is because these are timestamped hashed logs, you can never go back and modify the log after it's been Uh written. And because they're controlled by third parties, the certificate authority has no way to, you know, uh, decide that actually we didn't want to issue that certificate. So we want to not make it look like we ever did. So they basically, if a certificate authority does screw up, they can't erase their tracks. It'll be obvious from the simple search of this website that they issued that certificate. So it provides a number of facets of security that we're going to get from this. First, your browser can check that the certificate that you know you go to your bank and it sends you a certificate. You can then check against the transparency log and say, you know, did the certificate authority publicly admit they issued this certificate? Or is it one that, you know, a government made up or one that was made by somebody who hacked into the certificate authority? Now it's still possible for a uh, an illegitimate certificate to be on the log because yeah. if you say hacked Notar and uh, got them to issue you a certificate, or if you remember, uh, it was the Komodo one where uh, y- if you had control of a subdomain, oh yes, like a GitHub Pages, yeah, you could get a certificate for the right. root domain. Yep, um, you know. But that was one of my recent favorites. I mean, that's a good yeah. one. <laughs> um. So it doesn't stop everything, but it means that there's this clear log of exactly what happened. Right? Um, but it means that if if nobody's publicly admitting they made this certificate, you definitely don't want to trust it. Yeah, it makes sense. Right. We're not quite there yet cuz not every certificate authority publishes to the logs yet. And you know, we probably eventually want logs other than just Google, and uh, there's a couple, but you know, we have to develop a system for this so that you know, you don't have to go and check like 12 different logs. That are run by different people to see if it's in any of them or that certificate authorities have to publish to every log everybody decides to make right we have the it needs some fine tuning still but but one of the important things is it makes it uh, uh, possible to publicly audit the activities of a certificate authority if all certificates are logged and only the ones that are logged are trusted they can't scrub a certificate from the logs they can't hide the fact that they incorrectly issued a certificate for google or something right right kind of it seemed like Symantec was trying to do that and that's why uh, Google's forcing them to use certificate transparency or face being untrusted uh, you know. but it, it basically allows us to have more insight of what's actually happening at the c- certificate authorities or notice a pattern it's like The logs show that uh, this little-known certificate authority in in this tiny country, like Luxembourg or something, suddenly just issued certificates for, like, Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, uh, and Apple. Like, Mm -hmm. that seems out of the ordinary.
0: That's a little
1: odd. Yeah. And, like we said, kind of related to that, it allows a website operator or someone who owns a domain or whatever to do automatic searches, like with that CRT.sh, for their domain and see if there's any certificates that they didn't ask for. Right, because it's an API, you could set this up that you would get an alert anytime a, c- a certificate is issued for your domain, and if that doesn't correspond with you specifically, you know, getting a new certificate or renewing one, then hey, red alarm light's going off. Right. We gotta look into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before now, that wasn't really possible, right? Uh, you know, Google <laughs> would very much like to know whenever somebody tries to issue a certificate for Google, because uh, they know that should only happen when they ask for one.
0: Yeah. Get a push notification, maybe a tweet. Hmm. (laughs) Uh,
1: Because CAs are prime targets, they have to and tend to take security very seriously. DigiNotar was actually not an exception to this. Among other things, it had segmented its computer networks into several different isolated partitions to constrain access attempts and used an intrusion prevention system to monitor all incoming and outgoing traffic. Every request for a new certificate had to be vetted and approved by two DigiNotar employees. Then to issue the certificate, an employee had to insert a physical key card into a computer kept in a heavily guarded room. According to the postmortem on DigiNotar done by the security firm Fox IT, which was hired by the Dutch government to figure out what happened, uh, this room could only be entered if authorized personnel used a biometric hand recognition device and entered the correct PIN code. Uh, this inner door was protected by an outer door connected by a set of doors that operated independent of each other, creating a sluice. Uh, these sluice doors had to be operate uh, separately opened with an electronic door card that was operated using a separate system than the other doors. So that even if you hacked the one of the door systems, that wouldn't get you through the second door or the first door, vice mm-hmm. versa. <laughs> To gain access to the outer door from the public accessible zone, another electronic door had to be opened with an electronic card. So, like, you had to get into the outer room with a key card, and then you had to have, like, a hand scan, and then get through two completely separate key card systems, and then go up to this computer and insert a physical key card to do all this stuff. So they had very good security set up for physical editing. Sounds pretty legit. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, This mix of physical and virtual safeguards demonstrates that DigiNotar was not a company that had failed to think about or invest in security. It understood that the security was vital to its own reputation and for the wider world of Internet users who relied upon, often even without knowing it, on DigiNotar certificates to tell them who to trust online. But DigiNotar also made some serious mistakes during the summer of 2011. For one, it was running some unpatched software on its web server, which allowed an intruder to be in burrowing into the maze of partition networks in june of 2011 Uh uh-oh uh on july 10th the intruder successfully issued his first rogue certificate so it seems like they could have spent as much of a month of actually tunneling through the system to actually be able to issue a certificate Um, all told by the end of the summer they would go on to issue 531 rogue certificates for domains ranging from AOL.com and Microsoft.com to Mossad.gov.il and CIA.gov. <laughs> so once you've got access to a certificate authority server, issuing rogue certificates for high-value targets like the CIA is no harder than issuing them for sites like AOL. My one caveat to that is, in general... The SSL certificate for AOL is probably actually more valuable than the one for the CIA. Yeah, because <laughs> the CIA's general front page website, yeah, doesn't really have anything on it. Like people aren't going to be submitting secret information there. Yeah, but people do log into their email accounts at AOL. Top so, ten of
0: top ten stories by the CIA. That's what's at cia.gov right now for 2016.
1: <laughs> yeah. so it's like you, you could figure out what people are searching. This for is not again, a high traffic they, website. They don't have a login button anywhere, whereas AOL does. Yeah. So in this case, I'd actually say that the AOL one is uh, a higher value target than the CIA. But for embarrassment factor, maybe the CIA is a bigger one.
0: I, I, look at this, Alan. The CIA has a kids' zone section on their website where you can Perfect. learn more about the agency and find top-secret things you won't see anywhere else. They have it for uh, K-5 through five and 6th through 12th grade. And there's a section here for parents and teachers, too.
1: Uh, yeah, we have a, an interesting story in the roundup for uh, five-year-olds that wow. are interested in security. Well, there you go. Maybe then go to ci.gov. Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, it's still unclear how exactly the intruders managed to bypass all the physical security in place to protect the inner sanctum where certificates are generated. But the investigator's best guess was that the key cards for a few of the computers were just left permanently in place. Because of the amount of hassle it involved going into that room to stick the key card in to issue a certificate, <laughs> right? You had to, like, hand scan and go forever. through a bunch of these separate doors. Somebody would just leave the card in there, say, during business hours or something. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe they maybe they remove it at the end of the day. Maybe not. But uh, that might have weakened the security here. Um The other thing is, you know, if the attacker was observing for a whole month or something, he might have been able to just piggyback on them doing a legitimate request. And while the key card is inserted, also do this other thing. Although, you know, it's unclear. Although it's years later now, you think they might have been able to dig into it more. But uh, we never got more detail on what happened there. This is... uh, is If true, this would be uh, largely defeated the purpose of requiring keycard insertion, uh, not to mention all those sluice doors, biometrics, and PIN codes in the first place. You know, again, all that great security defeated by pesky
0: humans. Yeah, and laziness. Yeah. And you know what? It's always going to be that way, Alan.
1: So, on July 19th, uh, a routine check by DigiNotar revealed that some of the certificates it had ostensibly signed were not listed in the company's own logs. So, obviously, this hacker had found a way to issue certificates without them going in DigiNotar's logs, which is a problem, <laughs> right? This is something that the whole point of c- uh, certificate um, transparency is that if it's not in the log, it's not trusted. And that means that any certificate issued this way in such a way that the the certificate authority doesn't know about it means that uh, the browsers won't trust it. But, you know, there are a lot of systems outside of browsers. And the other thing is certificate transparency requires an Internet connection to verify the certificate. There are a lot of times where that's not an option. Very true.
0: Especially on Uh, air-gapped machines, perhaps, that are uh, highly
1: valuable. Other things, you know. You want What happens if you want to launch an iPhone app uh, on your phone while well, you it's in have, airplane mode while right. you're on an airplane? Or you just
0: don't have connection. That happens to me all right. the time.
1: Yeah. Now, currently, it just uh, authenticates the signature out of the trust store on the phone. It doesn't actually require an internet connection. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to have certificate transparency, sure. Uh, but if we just say, oh, well, we'll just skip it if there's no internet connection. It's like, well, the attacker might be able to take advantage of that. And then what point is there to it anymore, right? But at the same time, Apple's not going to go having a pop-up. like, you don't have an internet connection, so we're not sure if this app is legit. Hmm. I, I don't see that being part of any of Not a great user experience, no. Yeah. So, yeah. So, indeed, DigiNotar had no record of ever issuing these certificates. They were promptly revoked, and DigiNotar launched an internal investigation to uncover uh, even more rogue certificates. By the end of July, the company believed the problem had been dealt with. Hmm. Uh. So it came as a shock when they got this report from a user in Iran in August that this was still happening. Uh, You know, it surfaced at the Gmail uh, help forum a month later, and Google in turn blamed an unauthorized Google.com certificate issued by DigiNotar. Some of the rogue certificates, it seems, had slipped through the cracks of DigiNotar's internal audit. You know, the same thing was happening to Symantec recently. Uh, And they were being uh, used to certify imposter websites. Thousands of Iranians who visited Google's website in August of 2011 were apparently redirected to a site that looked like Google websites uh, and was also certified as belonging to Google by these uh, rogue certificates, but wasn't. Uh, Google's numbers from uh, stats in the Chrome browser indicate that just shy of 300,000 unique IP addresses trying to access Google websites were affected, and 95% of those IPs originated in Iran. I'm guessing most of the other ones might have been um, uh, Iranian users using a VPN but uh, leaking their DNS through their not VPN connection or something uh, where they were hitting the same thing. Uh, so is it, why bother redirecting hundreds of thousands of Iranian Google users to fraudulent websites? Probably in order to read their email. That's what I was thinking. Or just know what they're searching for and all those other things. Uh, you know, Only one thing stood in the way of that, though. Google Chrome. Mm. Uh so Google had taken to hard coding the hashes of certificates for Google owned websites into the Chrome browser. So that um, you know, rather than trusting the whole root store, they're like, this is the certificate that is Google and any other certificate claiming to be Google is fake. And it's detects this type of situation where this fake certificate was being used. You know, where a supposedly trusted certificate is in fact not authorized by Google. Uh so it was actually just that certificate pinning that Google was doing in Chrome that saved a lot of those users from having their searches and email intercepted. And now, and now that's sort of standard practice, right? Uh yes and no. So there are certificate pinning systems uh, that you know uh, Google and Chrome use, or uh, uh, Firefox and Chrome use. Uh, and there's also the same for like um, there's Edge. the HSTS, the oh, uh, HTTP security or. Strict Transport Security, where basically would be uh, if this web, uh, you know this website will always have SSL, but that only works if you've been to the website before to have gotten that message. So the browsers have a way of saying, hey, these specific websites will always have HTTPS, and basically preceding that record. But to get on the the browser certificate pinning list, you have to be a major website like uh-huh. Facebook or something, and so that doesn't really apply to say the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Uh-huh. Uh, not that there's anything that's secure there, but you know, um, some government might be interested in who's watching uh, Unfilter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the effort to do cert- uh, certificate pinning has been expanded, and other browsers implement certificate uh, similar systems. Um, but there's also systems to allow individual websites to publish the hashes of their uh, trusted certificates. So one of them is called TLSA, which basically is you publish the fingerprint of your certificate that's the right one via DNS. Uh-huh. And then the browser can check and be like, okay, that certificate matches, and therefore uh, we can trust that this website is, that certificate is the real one, and if we trust that certificate, we know that it's the real website. Um, but that requires DNSSEC, because otherwise a man in the middle could change the DNS yeah. response yep, yep. to be the hash of their <laughs> certificate. yeah. Um, and there's a couple other systems for it, but you know, none of them work all that great yet, but uh, someday we'll have something for this. Uh, and what's interesting is that if we actually got, if, 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 you know, DNS was a thing everywhere and we could just use TLSA, then we wouldn't even need certificate authorities. I could sign my own certificate and by publishing it via DNS, I could say, yeah, that's the trusted certificate for this website mm-hmm. and your browser could trust it without having to talk to a CA at all. Uh, maybe that's why there's a little pushback against doing this type of thing, but um, you know, I think the push to do it has been slightly stymied by Let's Encrypt, which makes it easy and free to have a regular certificate. But we'll get to them in a second. Uh, Anyway, so no one has ever been caught or charged with the compromise of DigiNotar, uh, though many have speculated that Iran's government was likely involved because that's where the certificates were used and they had the were one of the only people in the it actually in a in position to be able to man in the middle of the users. Um, the only clue left by the intruder, a message left behind on a DigiNotar server, offers only insight into the perpetrator's mission or identity, uh, or little insight into mission or identity, other than a profound sense of self-importance. This <laughs> says, I know you are shocked of my skills, but I got access to your network. Uh, there is, there is no my any skills. hardware or software in the world exists which could stop my heavy attacks. My brain or my skill or my will or my experience. That's pretty good.
0: I, it's poetic well, almost.
1: Yes, and and it's hard to argue with this point when he compromised the certificate authority that had all these security systems. Right, and started exactly to <laughs> for Google. You know, yep. there, there's there's being cocky, and then there's there's being right. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: I know know you Uh, are shocked of my
1: skills. (laughs) The discovery of the DigiNotar compromise left the browser and CA community to say nothing of the Dutch government reeling. Browser vendors rushed to revoke trust in the DigiNotar certificates, but removing a root CA was not entirely straightforward. You know, uh, Firefox, people said, we actually needed to push out an update to Firefox because the CA information was hard-coded into the browser. There wasn't a system in place to be able to do this quickly. They had to actually offer the next version of Firefox and have people update in order to be safe. Uh, additionally, many legitimate websites, including those operated by the Dutch government, were relying on DigiNotar certificates. So if they just bulk uh, stop trusting DigiNotar altogether you would get certificate warnings when you went to the Dutch government website to say, file your taxes. Mm-hmm. Not a great... It doesn't inspire experience.
0: confidence. Not not so much.
1: Uh, so the browser vendors uh, were forced to hold off a blanket ban on DigiNotar. Instead, they decided to block all DigiNotar certificates issued after July 1st of 2011. So anything ab- af- uh, anything that happened after the point where they were compromised. So anything before that would still be trusted and anything after... Uh, would be gone and you know that way you're only impacting websites that got certificates within the two months of of what happened and then uh, allowing users to decide whether they wanted to trust the older certificates but uh you know giving users uh, that autonomy over the online security only works if they have to understand what the messages are right if you go to the government website and get this weird message do you click yes or do you click no and if you click yes go anyway at what point are you going to do that? When the message is that certificate is totally fake, right? That's why, uh, mm. if you've ever had to accept a non-valid certificate in Firefox, you buy it, it requires like four clicks it's because the idea is that you really don't want to do that. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, so while browsers scrambled to protect their users, the Dutch government took charge of DigiNotar and commissioned the Fox IT uh, company to investigate what had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Hans Hugerstraten Uh, who led the investigation, said in an email, what really shocked me was when I realized the impact it had on the people of Iran. In those days, people got killed for having a different opinion. The hackers, which were presumably the state, had access to over 300,000 Gmail accounts. The realization of that, the security of a small company in Holland, may have played a part in the killing or torture of people really shocked me. Like the real-world ramifications of this. Yes. It's like this isn't just, uh, you know, PGP keys and, and open source robber stuff, right? It also suggests sure. that they did it with
0: an intent to find some specific people potentially.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps the most significant change in the certificate landscape is simply that there are now many more certificates than there were five years ago. Uh For a couple of reasons, right? We've seen uh, after 2013 and the Snowden leaks, suddenly more people wanted things encrypted. Mm -hmm. Uh, Google changed their search algorithm to give uh, more points to the websites that offer HTTPS. Right. Do you have the EFFs HTTPS everywhere? All these things have meant more people wanting certificates. And, you know, part of the giant increase in the number of certificates is let's encrypt. Sure. Sure which was launched earlier in 2016, uh, provides free certificates to anyone who wants them. Let's Encrypt doesn't provide the extended validation certificates because that involves a manual verification of the owner's identity. Uh, you know, that's the kind the most high-value targets generally get and warrant a green box. But, mm-hmm. you know, none of my banks use the green ones. Hmm. Can't Actually, recall. one of them does. Never mind. But, um, but, you know, that process can't be automated, so Let's Encrypt doesn't do that. But You know, there are hundreds of millions of websites and devices out there, and in the future, there'll be billions. For every one of uh, those to have a certificate, we'll need an issuance system that can be fully automated, Uh, says uh, Josh Asa, who's the uh, founder of the Internet Security Research Group, which helped establish Let's Encrypt. They say, issuing more certificates helps spread encryption, but it also raises the stakes of the security of the certificate authorities and the risk posed by incidents like DigiNotar. Uh, because it means that an increasing amount of online community relies on the protection provided by these digital certificates. Huh. And so that got me thinking about it a little bit. And it like, I know let's encrypt has a couple of things in place. They have a, they're basically an intermediate from a regular CA, but they have a backup one from a different CA in case something happens there. Uh-huh. Uh, so that they all the let's encrypt certificates will just suddenly go away one day or something. Yeah. Uh, but, I wonder if they actually maybe need to be a root CA uh, and be able to issue their own intermediate CAs hmm. and have a separate intermediate for each day, hmm. like hmm. each calendar day, hmm. right? So that if something were to happen, like, say, DigiNotar, they could revoke the certificates for a specific date range without, uh, yeah, you know, just rather than having to revoke each individual certificate, they could just revoke the intermediate CA that signed the certificate for each of those different um, for that date range, for each of the days in that date range, without impacting all certificates. Uh, you know, I'm sure there's some technical limitations to that, and and obviously, uh, it gets pretty messy with <laughs> the root store if you have to have all these things. But it seems like Let's Encrypt, in particular, needs to, you know, uh, consider a way in order to have most of these certificates, uh, be not such a problem. Although the other the advantage that Let's Encrypt has is that because certificates are only valid for 90 days, they can very quickly roll over everything. And everybody who's using Let's Encrypt, well, not everybody, almost everybody using Let's Encrypt has this all automated. So if they needed to just get reissued a new certificate that was signed by a different root CA or whatever, it's just a matter of that cron tab or whatever that runs. So actually, maybe Let's Encrypt is in a better position than most other places hmm. uh, to be able to do this. But, you know, in certain places, the Let's Encrypt certificates are a little hard to use. Like, uh, say you wanted to protect the BMC, the IPMI system on a server, where you have to get the whole certificate and then upload it via the the, the web interface for the management system. You know, you can't really automate that with Let's Encrypt, right? Uh, and there's no, uh, you know, dot .well-known directory in there where that the, the BMC can... Um, publish the the certificate to, or the the, I forget what they call the little file you use with LessenCrypt to prove that you own the domain or whatever. Yeah, I know what you're talking so, about. So encrypt doesn't work for everything yet, but it's getting there. Yeah, it's yeah. Anyway, um, an int- the problems with CA.
0: It was a big it, just before you move on. If you think about it now, the position of 2017, it was kind of a one of the biggest things to happen to the internet for 2016 uh especially especially for people that before would just never bother and now they just had immediate access to it looking back at it it was a really big deal it was it was yeah. sorry didn't mean to interrupt just kind of uh, in awe at the beginning of 2017 of that
1: yeah uh so um Berta and Nuda in the chat room point that uh that let's encrypt requires uh you know a public website somewhere that's mm-hmm. not actually Completely true. Mm-hmm. Almost all of the clients require that, but there is a system with Let's Encrypt to prove your own a domain with a DNS record, uh, and so it is somewhat possible to be able to uh, create certificates that are only for use internally, where the thing that the, where the certificate is going to be installed isn't necessarily uh, open to the public. Uh, but yes, Let's Encrypt doesn't do wildcard certificates because there's it's a lot harder to prove that that's safe sometimes. Uh, but, you know, wildcard certificates is how I've solved a lot of problems myself. Uh, so it'd be great if they had them. But, uh, you know, I know the FreeBSD project moved away from a, a wildcard oh. certificate from a regular CA huh. to wishing individual, issuing individual certificates for each different subdomain, um, uh, using Let's Encrypt. Huh. Uh, it took a little while to do the initial transition because you can only issue like 20 certificates a week with Let's Encrypt. <laughs> But uh, you know, once they're issued, the renewals aren't really limited, so it was easy enough. Anyway, yes. so the problems with certificate authorities have not gone away. In March of 2015, uh, years after the collapse of DigiNotar, Google discovered another set of rogue certificates for Google domains. <laughs> These certificates were issued by an Egyptian company, MCS That's Holdings, which in turn received its certificates from CNNIC. Uh, which is a CA, certificate authority operated by the Chinese Internet Network Information Center, uh, which is an agency of the Chinese government's Ministry of Information and Industry. <laughs> but soon after, Firefox and Chrome both removed CNNEC from the root CA list. Although, why were they there in the first place, right? Uh, just this summer, uh, the Chinese CA WoSign, uh, which had bought and uh, started SSL, was accused of issuing fake certificates for GitHub and Alibaba. And in October, Mozilla announced that it would no longer trust WoSign certificates. Hmm. But uh, thanks in no small part to the legacy of DigiNotar, browsers and CAs alike are better able to deal with problems like this than they were five years ago. You know, hopefully every CA has a plan for what if we get DigiNotar'd, whereas <laughs> in 2011 they didn't. Yeah. Right? Um, and... The browsers have built systems so they can more quickly revoke stuff, not yep. have to issue a full software update uh, that can take you know a week to get tested and published and get people to actually install. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, CAs can now revoke compromised certificates faster, uh, check certificates against public logs, and restrict the use of rogue certificates with pinning. But in other more fundamental ways, the system of relying on CAs to tell us who we can and can't trust online remains inherently vulnerable. And perhaps, more importantly, largely invisible to most internet users. Yes. So, while maybe most of the people watching this show understand how it works, most other people don't. And so when they get the certificate warnings or, you know, was Google's going to start saying this website's not secure for all non-HTTPS websites, general users don't really understand what that means. Right. And even if Google provides some help text for that to explain it to them, it's really not the same thing. Yeah. The complexity of the certificate infrastructure can make it difficult for the wider public beyond the community of browsers and certificate authorities who have long been attuned to the importance of the DigiNotar compromise to understand the risks they face online as well as the signals and warnings that their browsers are providing. You know, I think uh, we've covered a paper a while ago about uh, that some uh, a university student did uh, on the kind of Redesigning the UI of the certificate warnings to actually, and and malware warnings to make the user actually understand it and not just be a big, scary click no, you know, uh, or, you know, keep going anyway. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. It's like, well, at the same time, I, I, I want, for the benefit of regular users, Firefox to be really anal about all these things. But in a couple of the cases, there are some certificates that are so bad, it won't let you continue anyway. Like even with six button clicks, even going into a boat doesn't it doesn't how
2: yeah. it's not possible
1: to go to this website. Uh, it's like, but I need to. Uh, and I, res- I resorted to having like a portable version of Firefox, like 17 that didn't have this check. Wow. Uh, or using uh, a proxy basically. So... My browser is actually seeing a connection from a certificate I trusted from an nginx somewhere, and then it's making the connection to the really bad. And <laughs> nginx don't care. Just to let me, uh, to get the connection because, you know, it's the management system for the server I'm renting, and I can't update. You know, the company doesn't make newer firmware, or I can't update that firmware. But I need to access I'm, the system. I'm trying to picture
0: the moment where Alan Jude is sitting at his desk and he realizes. Shit! I've got to set up a
1: proxy server. <laughs> like <It's> I, like <laughs> I literally cannot connect to this because <laughs> the key size is too small. Mm-hmm. It was actually it was the uh, it wasn't IPMI. It was um, an old KVM, and it was doing like a five twelve bit certificate. Oof. which is just terrible. It was inexcusable when the device was new, right? <laughs> but the device was new in like two thousand and seven. And older than the show firmware for it a long time ago. Yeah. 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 But there. it's for my old servers that don't have IBMI. Right.
0: Well, now you've got that proxy server yeah. whenever you need to do that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so the folks who operate the CAs are, uh, really a very, uh, tempting point of attack. Um, says, uh, Daniel Gilmore, who's a senior staff technologist for the American civil liberties union. Uh, on the privacy and technology project. Uh, If you wanted to attack someone else, I would be looking for a lever of control they might not even know existed, like some of the underlying things for the certificate authorities and things like Heartbleed and all this other stuff. Um, The more we gloss over the critical components of the trust infrastructure that underlie our online communications, an infrastructure that is every bit as relevant today as it was five years ago, Uh, the harder it becomes to grasp how deeply and fundamentally all of our security is predicated on the security of those digital certificates and the companies that issue them. Uh You know, while much has changed, a lot of these issues aren't solved yet. You know, things have gotten a lot better since 2011, but a lot of the same problems still exist. And, you know, as we've seen with Symantec and WoSign and all this other stuff, there's no sign of things actually getting that much better. We're getting more systems in place, but part of it is the way the internet works is we still have to support the people that have old hardware or old software uh, to a point. Anyway, we've, we've done a fairly good job of just being like, all right, certificate's that old. There's nothing we can do. Uh, right. But, you know, we need to decide how we're going to solve this problem because it takes five plus years for that solution to actually become mainstream. Hurts. And like, you really got to think, how do we want to be doing this in 2025? Yeah. You know? uh, and we have to plan for that because it takes a couple of years to come up with a standard and then five plus years to get it to actually be used everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And not even everywhere, just
0: at a high enough level. Just where a we can... high enough
1: place that we can throw, turn off the old one and yeah.
0: see those people that haven't updated yet. Yeah. That's what's crazy. Yeah. Wow,
1: that's a huge story. I I think that
0: might have been a fifty-minute story almost. I'm not sure how far yeah. in we are. We're probably not quite. But <laughs> wow! Any other thoughts on that story, Al? Um, I think I've said enough. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's take a moment and say a few things about IX Systems. In fact, maybe you could visit ixsystems.com/slash/techsnap to help support TechSnap, celebrate episode 300, and learn more about IX Systems and their incredible rigs built around those Intel processors, ixsystems.com slash techsnaps, where you go to land and then dig around that site. Check it out. Everything from the free NAS mini, the servers they build for your workload, TrueNAS, and the TrueRack, and they have a post-up that I think might be kind of illuminating for some of you on their blog, Become a RAID Hero, and I don't have much experience with TrueNAS, but this sounds like it's kind of an interesting introduction to some of the uh, features. Uh,
1: This is just comparing Harbor Raid to software, Raid, mostly.
0: Uh, Well, and And the the TrueNAS software yeah. raid right yeah mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty compelling stuff in here
1: i like this well, you know for a long time software raid was the you know red haired stepchild that nobody wanted to use hardware right. raid was always better yes right but nowadays hardware raid is something on a card with a firmware made how many years ago that is a complete black box and the software raid is zfs which is open <laughs> source and gets used and can be updated ZFS. if something goes wrong <laughs> That's Which right. one do you want to use? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, like the hardware RAID is powered by a little like 100 megahertz ARM chip on the card. And ZFS is powered by the, you know, 32 core 4 gigahertz Xeon you have. Yeah. Very Which true. Which one do you think is going to do a good job? Very true.
0: You know the great thing about iX Systems is it's going to be a sales process like you've never experienced before. I don't, I don't know what it is about all the other companies out there, but they they made me a. Uh, it's not a jarred lover. What's it called, Alan? When you've been when you've been burned. What's that called? You know you're scorned. like uh, yeah, yeah, scorned I have like I've been a, I, I was a bit of a scorned lover when it came to the whole sales process of buying hardware when I got to IX. I would admit that I came in with a little preconceptions about how sales should go and how I should just submit everything through a form and then they should just whip me out of machine. In fact, I remember I remember thinking it was going to be a complete waste of my time, and then by the time I finished the process, I was so grateful that I had done it. It is, it is just the beginning of a great experience when you go to IX, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there to support the show, learn more about those crazy systems, running on those great Intel processors, and much more. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Alan, do you think we could really do episode 300 without without – doing a schneier story i mean come on bruce schneier's got it we got to do a bruce schneier story right
1: <laughs> yeah well this one um i thought was a good one to cover because it kind of explains you know i think we've maybe talked about class breaks before and how that could you know if somebody did a class break against rsa that might throw their entire certificate thrust system out the window dun, dun, dun. Uh, but this one's a little bit more aimed at uh, iot and just Thinking about the way we're changing a lot of things in the way we use computers for everything. Interesting. And thinking about how we have to look at security a lot differently than we have before. All right. That's all right. You got my attention. But, and, it, and it breaks it down to things people understand, like stealing cars. <laughs> <laughs> now you definitely got my attention. <laughs> yeah. uh, so there's a concept from computer security known as a class break. It's a particular security vulnerability that breaks not just the one system you're attacking, but an entire class of systems. Uh, examples might be a vulnerability in a particular operating system that allows you to compromise any computer using that operating system. Uh, or a vulnerability in an internet-enabled digital video recorder or webcam that allows an attacker to recruit all of these devices into a massive botnet. When has that ever happened? Can you, can you think of an instance where that's ever happened? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, in a particular way, computer systems can... Uh, it's it's a peculiar way in which computer systems can fail, exacerbated by the characteristics of computers and software. It only takes one smart person to figure out how to attack the system. Once he does that, he can write software that automates his attack. He can then do the attack over the internet so he doesn't have to be near the victim. He can automate the attack so he can do it while he sleeps. Uh, he can then pass that ability on to someone else or to lots of people who don't have any skill, hence script kiddies. Um this changes the nature of security failures and completely upends how we need to defend against them. Right. So, for example, picking a mechanical lock. This is a skill that's gotten quite a bit of hype lately, as more and more people are learning lock picking. Right. Yeah. Uh, that requires both skill and time to do. Each lock is a new job, and success with one lock doesn't guarantee success with this, uh, another lock of the same design. Electronic door locks, on the other hand, like the ones you find in say hotel rooms have different vulnerabilities. An attacker can find a flaw in the design that allows him to create uh, a key card that opens every door. If he publishes this attack software, not just the attacker, but anyone who could download it can now unlock every door. Um, And if these locks are, say, connected to the internet, an attacker could potentially open every door lock everywhere remotely. Yeah. At the same time. (laughs) Just imagine just... Every door lock in like entire chains of hotels just unlocking at the same time. That's a class break. Um, <laughs> so that's how computer systems fails, but it's not how we think about failures. We think about you know automobile, automobile security in terms of individual car thieves manually stealing individual cars, right? And so our defenses against that are based on that. Like, I'm going to put my car in a locked garage, and that's going to help a bit. You know, that's an extra layer they would have to get through. And so they're going to go after this easier car over there. Uh, And all those types of things, right? Uh, But we don't think about hackers remotely taking control of cars via, say, the OnStar system. Or, you know, uh, other cars that we've talked about. Uh, Or, say, remotely disabling every car over the internet right that we don't think about that when we think about car security we think about someone trying to take the car but what if they just made every car not start tomorrow that's as good as stealing the car as far as you're not being able to use the car they just don't necessarily get to sell the car like they would normally do with maybe stealing a car Hmm. or we think about voting fraud as you know individual unauthorized people being able to vote or voting twice or whatever uh We don't think about a single person or organization remotely manipulating thousands of internet-connected voting machines. Um, So in a sense, class breaks are not a new concept in risk management. It's the difference between, say, home burglaries and fires, which happen occasionally to different houses in a neighborhood over the course of a year, versus, say, floods and earthquakes, which basically happen to everyone in a neighborhood or no one. Ah. Right? Right. You know, if, if there's a flood, it's going to take out everybody on the street. Uh, whereas if there's a fire, it's probably only going to happen to one house or a burglary or something. Yeah. And so if you're in the insurance company, you treat those two things differently. Um, but, you, you know, you're the insurance company. You have to cover both things. So insurance <laughs> companies can handle both types of risk, but they're very different. Uh, the increased computerization of everything that's, uh, you know, is moving from being the burglary slash fire risk model the new flood earthquake model because you know they're not going to pick the lock to your front door they're going to find a flaw in the app you use on your phone to unlock your door and unlock every door in your neighborhood right and so it goes from being a fire at your house to a flood taking out your neighborhood um you know which is a uh, a given threat either affects you know a town or it doesn't affect anyone at all so it makes a big difference in the way we think about the security of everything. I like that. Uh, and you know, it's not even necessarily just security, but just reliability, right? It's like if your thermostat breaks down, your house is cold or hot, but your neighbors is fine. But if somebody finds a way to hack every nest, then a whole lot of people's houses are too cold at the wrong time, right? Yeah. Um, uh, there's a key difference between floods and earthquakes and a class break in computer systems, though. A flood are ran- and, and, and earthquakes are random natural phenomenon, while the latter is human-directed. Floods don't change their behavior to maximize the damage uh, based on the types of defenses we build, right? If we build drainage systems and, and ways to redirect the river when it overflows, um, the river doesn't try harder to... to, to take out your house it's just like okay you've you won whereas an attacker is going to design his attack to go around the defenses you built right that makes sense uh attackers do that to computer systems attackers examine your systems looking for class breaks and once they find them they'll exploit it again and again and again until the vulnerability is fixed and even then they'll then just look for a way to go around the vulnerability and continue attacking right right? we saw this with the um the php mail uh Mm. mailer Mm -hmm. exploit Mm -hmm. you know just before christmas they found this exploit and it got fixed right and then two days later they're like actually we found a way around your fix so that we can still exploit this vulnerability it's like because you know it's like oh the river looks like it might flood this year we set up some sandbags and it's like well the river's like well i'm gonna go higher than your sandbag it's like (laughs) well shit (laughs) (coughs) luckily rivers aren't you know out to get you that hard
0: (laughs) Yeah, thankfully. Although sometimes you wonder. No, I'm also I'm just worried about bears.
1: Yeah, uh, and the bear can do. Can the bears can learn a little bit? But yeah, yeah. What about raccoons, as, Alan? Let's be honest, yeah. raccoons those are clever. Yeah. <laughs> so as we move into the world of the Internet of Things and connected everything, where computers permeate our lives at every level, class breaks will become increasingly important the combination of automation and action at a distance will give attackers more power and leverage than they've ever had before, right? Like, we've seen this with ransomware for TVs. It's like, we found this vulnerability. We could take out every TV of this brand and, you know, what are they going to do about it? Mm Mm-hmm. Security notions like the precautionary principle where the potential harm is so great that we err on the side of not deploying new technology without proof of security will become more important in a world where an attacker can open up all the door locks or hack all the power plants. It's not an inherently less secure world, but it's a differently secure world. Hmm. It's a world where driverless cars are much safer than uh, people-driven cars until suddenly they're not. Right? Right. So – we're moving towards the self-driving cars. One day we wake cars, up and there's and some vulnerability. Then we'll, yeah. And they're much better, less, fewer accidents, everything right. will be better. Right. And then suddenly someone will figure out how to make your car drive off a cliff with you in it. And then they're not. <laughs> and then suddenly everybody wants to go back to driving their own car. Yeah. Huh. But, you know, even if you're driving your own car, a lot of cars now have the ability to apply the brakes even when you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as part
0: of the uh, cruise control, or also tug just on the emergency uh, braking, tug on the uh, tug on the uh, belt, and a little bit of lane correction too. If you're drifting, they'll also assist yep. lane assist.
1: Yes. Yeah, so because of this, we need to build systems that assume the possibility of class breaks and maintain security despite them. I agree. Sadly, we don't have the magic way to just do that tomorrow, but snap,
0: snap our fingers, Alan. it would be, be our gift as a epi- well. We are trying. We are trying. We are trying. just takes us a little while to get there. That was a great write-up. Uh, you know, Bruce has got a good way of phrasing things to make you think about it. That's, that, that really help you connect and I'm glad you uh, covered that one. Any other thoughts on that story, Mr. Jude?
1: Um,
0: nope. All right. All right. Now we are moving and I will mention DigitalOcean, our next sponsor on the TextNet program. Go over to DigitalOcean and use our promo code SNAPOcean. That's one word. You apply it to your account after you create one. And you get a $10 credit. And then you are cooking with gas, my friends. Check this out. DigitalOcean is simple cloud hosting that's super fast to spin up, really easy to use, SSDs for all of their disks, and they offer hourly pricing. You can get some amazing rigs for just like $0.03 an hour, $0.06 an hour, all just unbelievably reasonable. Or if you want to pay monthly, check out the $5 rig, $10 rig, and $20 rig. That's generally my range depending on the work. And uh, they also offer like super high-end Memory and block storage where you can attach up to 16 terabytes to your system. If you're not a server expert, it doesn't really matter. They have entire images ready to go. You can deploy, then you maintain it yourself. Or if you are someone who knows what the heck you're doing, you're going to love the fact that you can start with the base OS of basically any modern distribution or FreeBSD. get going, and then just use their their, uh, documentation and their API to take advantage of all the more advanced features. And now they have valuable in – go ahead. Because they have the HTML5
1: console, you don't even have to start there. Uh, we had a tutorial on BSD Now a couple of weeks ago about starting with the free BSD they give you, but erasing it and doing your own completely fresh installs so you control all the partitioning the way you want or whatever. Hmm. Um, we've had other tutorials in the past on how to install operating systems they don't offer. Using the HTML5 console, you know you can uh, write it, the installer image for whatever OS you want to use into, say, the swap and then trigger it into booting off of that and then overwrite the the virtual disk with whatever operating system you want. So if they don't have the one you want, you can still do it. Uh, If you go over to BSD now, we have tutorials on installing like NetBSD and OpenBSD. Uh, But this could easily be adapted to installing, you know, whatever your favorite Linux is that they don't offer. I also would mention,
0: too, they have great documentation. Uh, They have an introduction to configuration management, which is a four-part series. They have guides up on installing Linux, Nginx, MySQL, PHP on Debian, Ruby as well. Uh, a bunch of other stuff. Check it out. they got a whole bunch of good tutorials that help you get even more out of your DigitalOcean service. DigitalOcean.com. Big thank you to DigitalOcean and thanks to everybody for using our promo code SNAPOcean. Also, check out the new DigitalOcean monitoring coming soon where you can collect mo- metrics on your droplets performance and uh, get alerts and all kinds of stuff. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. One word, apply it to your account. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring TechSnap. Okay, so hiding malware in a PNG. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this. Sounds this so sounds dangerous.
1: Yeah, so if you remember uh, two or three weeks ago we talked about that uh, the DNS changer uh, exploit kit mm-hmm. that was uh, hiding the payload in a regular image file on the um, yeah. on the advertising network. Yep. Uh, so a researcher has shown us how to actually do that yourself with a PNG image so, that you can upload your malware to Imager and get free hosting. Uh, so, Very yeah, the recent router hijack malware, we saw the attackers were hiding the encrypted payload uh, in an image file served by the advertising network. Hmm. And then the JavaScript would decrypt it and extract the payload only if the victim met a certain set of criteria so that it wouldn't show up during the advertising network's malware scans. Right? <clears throat> I'm sure they're constantly uh, looking. Yeah. Well, some of them actually at least try to prevent malicious ads. Well, yeah. it's uh, yeah. But the main advantage to this method is it doesn't leave a trail back to a command and control infrastructure. Whereas most other ones where it's going to, you know, you get the downloader and then it goes out to an obvi- a website somewhere and downloads the malware. Uh, that's one of those signatures that any virus software can eventually block. But if the payload is delivered via the advertising network, then you can't just block that
0: necessarily. Right.
1: right. Um, You know, there's no central location or obvious sign that the computer was downloading some malware. So your um, intrusion prevention system doesn't see this connection to some weird website you wouldn't expect. All you're seeing is the legitimate connection to download an image from the Google Advertising Network or, you know, whatever other advertising network it happens to be. Uh, But it means that there's no separate connection going out and downloading the malware. It's just kind of bundled in, in this expected traffic. So this post shows a crude method of hiding an executable file in a PNG image <laughs> and posting it to Imgur. Uh, <laughs> because with Imager you don't have to sign up or anything. Right. Right? You can just post. So there's no trail back to you this way. That's pretty clever. Uh, the image can then be downloaded by a PowerShell script or Visual Basic script or Microsoft Office macro or whatever. Um, so PNG files are different than most other image formats. Uh, not forwards. Sorry. I'm fixing the show notes here. Live show no <laughs> corrections. By Alan Jude. Um, So like with a JPEG, you have an original image and then you compress it by taking out bits that your eye doesn't really notice. And so when you, the resulting file at the very end isn't the same as the original, right? Because JPEG is lossy. Some of the data goes away. Mm -hmm. PNG is lossless. It's basically a bitmap that is then just Zlib compressed with basically a GZIT uh, bitmap. And so that means when you unzip it you get back exactly the perfect image. Hmm. Uh so it makes it a lot easier to hide information in it cuz you know that none of the bits are going actually going to get thrown away. Right, okay. Um so each pixel in a regular 24-bit uh, like high resolution PNG, each pixel on the screen is represented by four uh one byte values. Uh you know, basically the values between 0 and 255 for red green blue and the alpha channel which is the transparency okay so you know if the values were like you know 0 0 255 128 then that would be a blue pixel that was half see through okay um so this allows the image to represent the full spectrum of colors right because you have 256 possible values for red green and blue so 256 times 256 times 256 is two to the power of 24 which is 16.7 million different colors that you can make that's pretty much standard yeah. um and then each of those pixels that can be one of those seven uh, 16.7 million colors can be 256 different degrees of see-through from not see-through at all to completely see-through mm-hmm. um So in the post example, the JPEG, uh, they they have a JPEG image. If you scroll down a little bit, it's it's actually a JPEG of like antivirus software. (laughs) So there's this little virus-free guarantee. (laughs) Uh, So he takes that JPEG and encodes it into the image we saw at the beginning (laughs) of the dice. And then uh, the resulting image, uh, you can see, has like static in it, like an old-fashioned analog TV. Is that down back, here? Scroll up. Oh, no, okay. Oh, of the I dice. Just,
0: I, just I, I got. I got Over. so delighted by that. Yeah, there it is.
1: Yeah. So, it's like, if you look at the scroll up a little bit more, look at the original dice. You can see, there's just yeah, nice, nice digital, uh, like translucent dice on a clear back on a black background. Mm-hmm. But in the uh, in the version with the crudely hidden image in it, it is just static, because all we're doing is base 64 encoded that JPEG, and used the transparency value of each pixel to represent one byte of the original file. And so it's made the image uh kind of washed out because it's half transparent and it's very statically because you have all these random values. Mm-hmm. Now if you use a slightly better algorithm for it, you could make it much smoother. And uh if you had a big enough PNG and a small enough payload, you could actually um only use a small amount of variants like only make it just a tiny tiny bit transparent such that people wouldn't notice sure and so if you had a a, a carefully chosen image as your original you could have the version with the embedded image or in the embedded file like undetectably the same hmm. like you would need to use like image diff or hmm. or the SHA checksum to tell that they were not the same image hmm. uh, so um If more work were put into it, it'd be much harder to detect. And so then he's got the the Python script at the top that actually encodes his fake image in, and then he shows taking it out and verifying with the SHA five twelve that the hashes are the same.
0: Yeah. How do how so?
1: How are you? You're hiding the malware, but how are you getting anything to execute it? uh, Well, so in this case, it's not about. there have been bugs before where PNGs could be tricked into executing things, but it's it's not that. In this case, it's just, um, you've already compromised the computer or whatever, but you want to download the malware from somewhere that's not going to be blocked, hmm. or that's not going to stand out as oh, right, that's obviously distribute. them downloading malware. Right, right. Whereas if you're pulling an image from, say, you know Google or you're pulling an image from an advertising network or from Imgur, Imager, yeah. that's not going to look like you're downloading a virus executable. It mm-hmm. looks like you're downloading an image of some dice. Right? So it makes it harder for intrusion detection systems to tell that this computer is downloading a virus. Huh. So in this case, you would have to still get them to run the PowerShell script or to the VBScript or the mm-hmm. the uh, Microsoft Office macro. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it talks a bit more about that. But there's, uh, if you, at the very bottom, you can see the example where they hel- uh, hit a version of calculator.exe in an image. And then hmm. when you ran the PowerShell script, <laughs> it downloads the image in PowerShell, extracts the data out of it, figures out, uh, you know, uh, the alpha channel stuff, pulls out calc.exe and runs it. Uh, and there you go. You've now downloaded a virus and run it on the computer. Uh, and the only internet connection you made out was to download an image from a website that right. looks innocent. which, yeah. Probably came in over HTTP, no big deal.
0: Looks like uh, standard technology, standard traffic, I mean.
1: Yeah. Uh, someone in the chat room says that they just tried it and they got an error. Uh, make sure that the image you're embedding has to be smaller than the PNG. In particular, because you're only using the alpha channel, uh, obviously you could mess with the other colors too, but then the original image is going to get awfully distorted. Uh, because you're only using the alpha channel, your image that you're embedding needs to be no more than one quarter the number of bytes Mm -hmm. that of the original PNG, (laughs) although not quite because of compression. So one of the other cool things about this one versus some other steganography is that um, the resulting file isn't necessarily going to be any bigger than the the one without anything encoded. If you have a regular image that's not transparent, all that alpha channel is just zeros. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so it compresses well. So your new file might actually be slightly bigger because it won't compress as well with the data in there. But in general, it's not actually going to be bigger. There's uh, some other ways he's talked about it doing this is uh, imager, because it processes the images, uh, strips some stuff off. But there was other ways you could do it where you could have just a regular JPEG and a JPEG viewer will read it and then stop at the end of the JPEG. But if you had other data there, it was still there. So you could just take a JPEG and then cat a zip file onto the end of it and then upload that image. Although Imager, because they process the image and, and you lower the quality for JPEGs or whatever, uh, it eats the, the zip file. But this technique mm-hmm. of hiding it in the alpha channel means that it doesn't get taken away. Mm-hmm. Uh and he reported it to Imageur and they've decided that right now that's you know it's not going to exploit people visiting Imager or anything, so they're not that worried about it. But you know at some point it might be hey, this image doesn't have any transparency, so I'm just going to, you know, overwrite all the alpha channel with zeros and get rid of the hidden message. Yeah. Although there are some other ways to hide the message and you could always make the image partly transparent so that they wouldn't do that. But uh, it's just uh, an interesting technique and in just showing us how you could do like that uh, the, the browser malware did, where the malware is actually mostly JavaScript and then going to take advantage of some exploit in like Flash or something. Right. Uh, but it's hiding the payload... In the image, because you see, oh, that's just an image. I'm not going to look at that part. And I see the JavaScript it doesn't seem to do anything that bad. It's hiding the malware in plain sight, Alan. Yeah. Oh, you see what I did
2: there?
0: Huh. Fascinating. Well, thanks for finding that for us and sharing it. Uh, And it uh, does remind us of the story that we covered recently. Mm -hmm. Okay. You ready to move on? So how you could do that. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the the whole trick of the fact that because of the way you're doing it doesn't make the image a whole bunch larger is uh, particularly tricky.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, some of the other ones were like, oh, we just hide it in the comments in the JPEG or hide it in the, the right. data that's going to get ignored. It's like, well, that mostly works, but yeah. You'll during see processing, the size. That, image might go, that stuff might go away. Yes. Whereas unless they resize the image on the PNG, it's unlikely right. that any processing is actually going to nuke this stuff. Whereas like metadata about when the PNG was created, often on sites like Imgur, they purposely erase that so that the image doesn't propagate, say, the, uh, the latitude and longitude of where you made the image or something. Um, so a lot of that metadata yeah. where you might otherwise hide information yeah. gets removed or overwritten on purpose or, yeah. you know, just by the image processing tools they use. It now says instead of created by the software you use, it's created by the software they use. Uh, but because you're hiding this in the transparency... It's part of the image, and the software doesn't end up touching it.
2: <laughs>
0: and there it is. All right. You want, to know what you want to know about something else that's just a little tricky? How about Ting? Ting's on a mission to make mobile make sense. TechSnap.Ting.com is where you go. You get $25 in service credit if you bring a device. Or if you uh, want, you can get $25 off a brand new device from Ting. TechSnap.Ting.com. Minutes messages and megabytes that's all you pay for at ting it's six dollars for each line you can have one line or you can have a dozen lines it didn't or probably more uh, in fact, if you're a small business and you have about 10 lines, you're almost guaranteed you're going to save money with Ting. com. Go there. Average bills, about 23 bucks a month. They have fanatically good customer service. You'll talk to a real human. They'll stick with you through problems. They have CDMA and GSM networks to choose from. They have a great dashboard to manage every aspect. Oh, hello, hello drop down terminal. To manage every aspect of your account. I was just looking, you know. You think about it, $9 for a SIM card, there's all kinds of uses for that from security systems to IoT devices, quote-unquote, uh, and and flash update, also phones. <laughs> Who knew, right? Phones. You could put them in phones and tablets actually. That's kind of legit. Text, that's super nice because think about this. With Ting, like myself, I have a tablet that I use that I pretty much always have on Wi-Fi. Every now and then I'd love to have mobile service with it. It's a great candidate for a ting sim. Um, so we did it. And, you know, it's, it's so simple, too, because when you're done, you just cancel it, turn it off. It's not a big deal. It's, there's no contract. There's no termination fee. It's very simple. It really is the way mobile should work. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. Also, while you're there, even if you're not a Ting customer, it might be worth checking out their blog. Lots of good stuff these days on cord cutting and a post that sort of rounds up why 2017 is going to be a pretty good year for cord cutters. You can check it out. But just do us a favor and visit techsnap.ting first. And then click on over to the blog, Mm -hmm. techsnap.ting.com. Thanks to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. (laughs) So BSD Now 175, right? Is that right? 175? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Got out nice and early this morning. And the title, How the d Trace Saved Christmas.
1: (laughs) Nice, guys. I I got a tweet from the author originally. It's like, they highlighted, uh, did a good breakdown of my post and came up with a much better title than I did. (laughs) That's very funny. That's very good.
0: Looks like a pretty good episode.
1: You know, just because you don't have the source code to software doesn't mean you can't fix it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That D-Trace is such an amazing tool, Alan. That is really good. Oh, and the Save save My Blog's Name uh, guy uh, got in there. Good. That was a great blog post. I'm glad you guys covered that. That looks like a great episode. So check it out. BSD now. Uh, And, uh, you know, even though uh, Alan and I are stepping aside, of course, I'm still on all the other shows I do. And Alan will still be on BSD now. And so if you want more Jude in your face, you can go get it right now. Go grab episode 175. Why not get the HD version? Because this is about the halfway point of this show, which means by the time this show's over, you'd have more high definition Jude ready to go. We'll go check it out. BS2 now. Yeah. I'll still be here every week. That's right. Well, it's just not here. I'll be there. you over there. The, uh, you'll be. you able to see me every week still. So come just back. go to the same website. You just click on a different yeah. show, basically. <laughs> all right, with the news all done, it's time for the TechSnap feedback. for sending your emails to techsnap at Jupiterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or maybe you started a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Planipus Moo writes in, with, or Mew, <laughs> writes in with our first one about ZFS on Linux. And he says, uh, ha- uh, have a happy new beer. And he would like to mention that he's building a new Linux home server and he'd like to add an L2ARC and a ZIL once he's paid off all the other components. He's got a Xeon in there. Wow. Damn. He's got a—he's got himself a nice rig. But he says, here are my questions. What capacity should these caches have? Like maybe 32 gigs? Can I get away with... So
1: um, for the Zill, yeah, you—it's the Zill is only used for synchronous writes, which are writes where the program is waiting until the write is done before it moves on. So depending on your workload, you might have zero of those or very little of those, and therefore there's no advantage to having a Zill. Uh, but databases and a bunch of other things do make use of those and so it can be valuable but yes with a zil you really don't need more than 32 gigs probably even less than that Eight is probably lots especially Ah, for a home server okay um the l2 arc on the other hand more is better but there's a problem uh the l2 arc is basically so you have the arc which is the adaptive replacement cache which is the cache in ram where zfs keeps blocks you are using a lot so it doesn't have to read them from disk when there's not enough ram it can move stuff from the arc to the L2 arc which is an SSD or NVMe or something like that so that it's still faster than getting it off the spinning hard drive sure the problem is everything that's in the L2 arc needs to have a reference in the arc right cuz when you know when it goes to see hey do i have a copy of this in the arc uh if it doesn't then it goes to disk so in the arc it'll have a smaller header pointer saying, hey, that's over in the L2 arc, go over there to get it. And it says where on the disk it is. Um, the problem is that each of those takes space. So every block that's actually in the L2 arc takes a bit of RAM. If your L2 arc is big and the amount of RAM you have is kind of small, that means that almost all of the RAM will be used pointing to the L2 arc and meaning you're not actually caching as much data in RAM. And since RAM is many times faster than even your SSD, sometimes you're better off having less fast cache than more slow cache, right? Um, so you don't want your L- you you want your L2 arc to be as big as we want possible, but you're kind of size bound by how much RAM you have. Okay. So if you have too much RAM, uh, sorry, you can't have too much RAM. If you don't have enough RAM and too much L2 arc your ram really is going to be wasted just pointing to the l2 arc instead of actually caching things and that will hurt your overall performance so if you have less than 64 gigs of ram you probably don't need an l2 arc at all because you'd rather use all of the ram you have caching files directly huh. um, and an l2 arc only makes sense when it's not possible to put any more ram in the machine all right uh, with the E3, I think because that's a V3, the max RAM on that will be 32 gigs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you could do an L2 arc, but I don't know uh, that it's that bad. The nice thing uh, that kind of answers your other question about an L2 arc is you can add and remove it. Because it's just uh, the L2 arc is uh, read cache. If it breaks or goes away, it doesn't hurt anything. It just oh. means, oh, I have to go to the disk
0: again. That, that does that. answer his other question.
1: So, yeah, his other question is can these be added after? Or removed, and the answer for both is yes. Although the ZIL, you have to be a little more careful removing it because there might be data on it that is expecting to be written to the pool and hasn't been yet. But as long as it's as long as the device doesn't fail, then yes, the remove command allows you to remove your L2ARC and your ZIL. Um, so you can experiment with them, and if it doesn't work out, you can take them out. So it's not a huge deal. But um, yeah, since that's a V3 Xeon E3. That's probably uh, limited to 32 gigs because I think it's the V4 or V5 before the max RAM goes up to 64 gigs on an E3. Uh, so with that little RAM, mm. an L2R probably doesn't make sense, and unless you're running a database or something, the ZIL might not make sense either. In which case, you could just save the money and not buy an SSD. Um, <clears throat> but If you want to experiment with it because, you know, you want to build a bigger one uh, for work or something, but you want to try it at home and learn about how it works, it's perfectly fine to do so. That's a good idea. So So, uh, answering the the next question. Yeah. uh, Can I get away with both of these just being partitions on the same SSD? Yeah. Yes, you can. Oh. Uh, Obviously... You know, there's performance impact to that. But again, for just screwing around, it's perfectly fine. In the real world, you probably end up wanting two different kinds of SSDs for these in production. Whereas the Zill is going to be very small and very, very high endurance because you can write to it all the time. Sure. Um, Whereas the L2 Arc, um, that one's going to be a little bit more read heavy, although you are writing it. The nice thing is ZFS provides a throttle for that. So you can limit how much you're writing to it so that, you know, if you buy an SSD that says it can handle this many terabytes of writes and you tell ZFS, don't write more than this many megabytes per second, you know that you're not going to wear out that drive too soon.
0: Okay. Uh, now, what do you, do you see as a question about encryption? He says, would it be rather... It gets s- to that in a second.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, so, can the cache be added later? Yes. You can build the machine, use it, and then add or remove the L2Arc and Zill right. at any time. Right. And then he asks, uh, how are they assigned? L2Arc and Zill are global per pool. Uh, you can turn both on or off per data set with other settings so the L2ARC is the secondary cache setting uh, property for each data set so you can turn on or off whether the L2ARC is used um, but you can't assign a specific L2ARC to only be used for one data set or something like that so the ZIL and L2ARC are global to one individual pool um, but you can control whether they're used or not per data set uh, but that's about all the control you have there okay and then so yeah lastly asked about encryption Encryption, yeah uh would it be rather stupid to lux encrypt all the pools uh but have the contents in plain text in the caching storage um it depends what your goal is sometimes the only reason you're encrypting the drive at all uh maybe the key sits in a plain text uh on a usb sticker on the ssd so the system can boot without a password the only reason you're doing the encryption is so that when a drive fails you can send it back for the warranty replacement without having to worry about the Plain text data being on the disk because everything was encrypted. Um, so sometimes it depends what your goal with the encryption is. Uh, but if you're using something like GELI or if you're using LUX under on the raw block device and then passing that block device into um, ZFS, I don't know how LUX works, so I can't answer that question specifically. But if you're doing something like GELI where you're providing a transparent block device that does the encryption for you to ZFS, Uh, then you can still do that for the l 2 r and Zill as well. Although, you know, if your point is to be fast, encryption isn't necessarily fast. Hmm. So that's, again, up to you.
0: Okay. He says greetings from UTC plus
1: (laughs) one. Are you ready for the next one, sir?
0: Uh, Sure. Okay. So this one comes in from Computer Freak 33K, and he's just got some questions about backing up Freenas. I'm looking to set up Freenas server for a small business, and I was wondering what the best way to back up the data would be. One way I was thinking of doing this is setting up periodic snapshots for the data pool and then a replication task to replace the snapshots to a pool for backups. I was planning on having the backup drive part of the system as well since they don't really have a budget for a dedicated backup server. And he kind of gives an example there with some tables. Is this a good way of backing up free NAS drives or is there a better way of doing this? Thanks.
1: What do you think of uh, So, yeah, that uh – you know, the feature for all that is built into FreeNAS, although I think in FreeNAS the GUI usually assumes that the backup pool is on a second server, but it can be on the first server for now and eventually go to a backup server later once they can have a second server or something. Uh, but yeah, uh, ZFS likes to do this. That's a good way to do it. <laughs> okay. Um right. and you can you can have all the data sets in the backup pool not be mounted or have the property read only set, and that way um data can there can never be changed so if something does happen to the data pool it doesn't happen to the backup pool it doesn't help you in some cases like if the you know a lightning strike comes in and tries the power supply and breaks both set of hard drives because they're both plugged in the same power supply or someone steals the server or someone hacks into the server and gets root access and can just gpool destroy both pools it doesn't help you there where remote server helps maybe a little bit more uh but in general that's uh a decent way to start doing it. But that is one replica, not necessarily a backup. Uh, so you might want to have backups as well, but it's a good first step. Yeah, a uh, good way to put that. JB Viewer 11
0: writes in, Alan, and he's been watching since before episode one. He says, wow, I can't believe this is going to be the last show of Alan and Chris, episode 300. I remember when you and Alan, he's talking to me, We're talking about a new show you are going to start. Alan was filling in for Brian at the time, for last. You and I must have been just chatting on the live stream. He says, thanks for all the great things you and Alan shared with us to make us just a little smarter. You'll be missed from me, a.k.a. JBViewer11, in the chat room.
1: Well, thank you, JBViewer11. Yes, I know. A number of people have been watching since the beginning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But a lot of people that – I introduced to it after. Actually, Dan, who's going to replace me, is one of those. Uh, I told him about the podcast at BSDCan one year, uh, and he subscribed via his iTunes or whatever and started watching it. He started watching at the current episode, but then was watching backwards all the way to episode one, <laughs> Oof, which I thought was interesting. Watching us devolve. <laughs> it's the same as, yeah, it's not the same as starting at one and going forward. Uh, you know, in, in particular, you wanted the more recent news sooner, and then yeah, sure. I know. After I'll, I got more than a couple of months behind, I probably would have I would have started back at one, but yeah, he went the other way. Yeah. Uh, but by next BSD can he had a patch your shirt and, right and was wearing it to the conference. So. That's awesome. Uh,
0: yeah, you know, and it's interesting too. There's there's folks that are that have been watching and listening since episode one that have never even stopped by the chat room. They've never logged into the IRC room. Uh, they've never emailed us. There's just so many people out there we don't hear from. In fact, uh, if I think if I I checked by the la, by the last stats, if uh, if this, which I would imagine this, if, if anything, will probably do better than some of our more than an, than an average episode. But if this episode gets average downloads in 30 days after 30 days of this episode being published, 117,000 people, unique 117,000 unique listeners, will have downloaded this show, um, and we only hear from a small fraction of them. So I am so appreciative of those of you who have taken the time every now and then to write in or say hi, but I also appreciate those of you who just have time to listen and we we I mean we started the show with uh, essentially no listeners and over uh, the 6 years it's grown to something that's Pretty amazing. Connor writes in. He says, thanks for the lessons. I'm a 17-year-old who's been listening to TechSnap since about episode 100. I've thoroughly enjoyed every episode, and I want to thank both of you for teaching me so much. It's been an entertaining and informative experience. Many thanks and best wishes to the future. In fact, mm-hmm. thank you to everybody who sent in a ton of best wishes to uh, Wes mm-hmm. and Dan. Uh, people also already writing emails to Wes and Dan, which is awesome. Please keep those up. Yes. I, uh, I, really love, yeah. I really love seeing that. I
1: really appreciate that. Uh, that's part of the, one of the most fun things is answering the feedback. Even though oftentimes they're hard questions or things I don't necessarily have the answer to. Uh, but uh, you know, especially on, on BSD now, we do this as well. And oftentimes they're questions that I'm not the expert on that. But the next week we get an email from someone who is answering <laughs> the question for somebody. Yeah, uh, which is great too. But mm-hmm. um, the feedback is is definitely the most interesting part of the show, just because I get to see what people actually have questions about and helps me understand what part to explain you know um uh, i remember especially early on when i really wasn't sure what people wanted out of TechSnap. snap it was a lot harder to pick top stories mm-hmm. and then one feedback somebody was like what's the difference between like raid five and raid six and i turned it into like a the half hour thing on like <laughs> what the different raid levels are and yeah and and back then i didn't i wasn't even really into zfs yet mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: I feel very <laughs> new. watching those old ones is weird. Yeah, it was very new back then. Yeah, it's been an, it's it really it really shows you that Wes and Dan will have their own trajectory too. You know, it, it's yep. so much changes over the first twenty weeks and then the first hundred weeks and and then eventually you find yeah, your yeah. groove. You're usually around two hundred.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's yeah. more. I mean,
0: yeah, yeah. I and you know uh, the audience. I don't know, some of those early episodes were the best ones, though.
1: You think so? Some of them, yeah.
0: Yeah, I it, it depending on some metric. Yeah, I think you're probably right.
1: Yeah, like uh, the ultimate home server. Yeah. What the raid levels are. Yeah. A couple of the other ones were just different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's
0: true. It's fun because back <coughs> some then of was where those was we like were, uh, we were experimenting, explaining a little an more.
1: abstract concept rather yeah. than reporting the news. I think some of those I I liked better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they're a bit more work to write as well. <laughs> And that there's that
0: and and there's sort of the 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 uh the practical aspect of doing it every single week sort of necessitates you can't Yeah, re- and like war
1: stories. Eventually I ran out of stories.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and we could keep fishing uh, for some, but it just it takes quite a bit. And I I well, think I, also We had uh, 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 Irish Allen wrote in a bunch of war stories for us and we used those Right. For all the right. You know, I think also but one of the tricks to uh I guess we can say this now, and then we'll move out of feedback. But I think we can officially give this kind of advice now that we are at 300 weeks without missing a beat. I think one of the things to a reliable, sustainable podcast is finding a happy, sustainable medium prep-wise, because you you can overdo it, and then you burn yourself out, and you can underdo
1: it, and you don't get enough people listening or watching. Yeah. Part of that was, I found it, the audience didn't seem to notice the difference between when I spent like 10 hours and
0: when I spent four kind of depends on the stories and and, yeah. and what you have to say about them, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: part of it is that you know, I got better at just formulating my opinion more quickly, I guess. But Right. Yeah,
0: it does take a little bit to get to be able to and, do that. And part
1: feet. of it is I learned to rely a little more on what I would come up with while we were just talking about it mm. versus having to have all the points I wanted to make written down. Otherwise... I wouldn't be comfortable doing it. Mm -hmm. Part of it is I just got more comfortable, which Mm I think helped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which you just learn by doing.
2: Yep.
0: So you can keep sending your questions in. Wes and Dan, fully qualified to answer, and they'll be looking for them. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or go over to the contact page. Thank you, everyone, who sent in uh, your best wishes and your encouragements to the future team as well. But with the feedback all done, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup were stories that didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you a bunch of links after the show, and some of these links came from our intelligence agency over at TechSnap.reddit.com. I believe this first one did, as a matter of fact. I hate these kinds of stories a little bit, a little bit, because it's not really the best way to judge this kind of thing. But if you go by the CVEs, Android was the most vulnerable product of 2016. Android, then Debian Linux, then Ubuntu, then Flash.
1: (laughs) What's interesting that they're separating those two? Because I'm guessing almost all the same CVEs would apply to one or the other. Yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah.
0: So there you go. Android, which... But uh, following, I'm guessing uh, Firefox and Chrome are up high on that list. Yeah, let's see here. Uh, Linux kernel is number 10, Chrome number 13... Uh, iPhone OS, I guess they mean iOS, is uh, fifteen. Edge is nineteen. Where's Firefox? That Father? seems a lot different than previous years.
1: Yeah, I know. Previous years it was like browsers and plugins. It was yeah. like Flash, Java. Like how is Java not even in the top? Like every quarterly release from Oracle had fifty plus security vulnerabilities. How did that not add up to being in this list? Yeah, yeah. I don't. This and l- the weird like, list. I don't know. Listing Windows multiple times just seems like that clutters the list a bit and screws up the rankings. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's why I'm not a
1: big fan of them. That's why I'm not a big fan. Or like of Acrobat, Acrobat DC, Acrobat Reader DC. And to make sure that it's a classic episode
0: of TechSnap for episode 300, we have a Brian Krebs story in the roundup. Yes. The FTC's uh, Internet of Things Challenge, huh?
1: Yeah. So the, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission in the US, is having a challenge uh, to try to solve the IoT security system problem. Uh, with a reward of only $25,000. but <laughs> say, One of the biggest cybersecurity stories of 2016 was the surge in online attacks caused by poorly secured Internet of Things devices like routers, security cameras, and DVRs that, say, were used to attack Krebs. Uh, many readers have commented about ideas on how to counter vulnerabilities caused by out-of-date software on IoT devices. So why not pitch the idea for money? And that's what the U.S. Federal Trade Commission is proposing. Uh, what they want to do is uh, seeking ideas for a tool of some sort that would address the burgeoning IoT mess. The agency will offer a cash prize of $25,000 for the best solution and up to $3,000 uh, f- uh, for the three honorable mentions. The FTC said the ideal tool might be a physical device that a consumer can add to his or home, her home network that would check and install updates for other IoT devices on the home network – Or it might be uh, an app or cloud-based service or a dashboard or other user interface. Uh, Contestants have the option of adding features such as those that would address hard-coded factory default or easy-to-guess passwords. That kind of poses a couple of problems. I don't want that device on my network being able to update the firmware on that device on my network. Mm, Okay. Without some kind of... um, Interaction? uh, Verification? Because otherwise... If somebody does hack the DVR, the DVR can then overwrite the firmware Uh, on my thermostat with evil firmware. All right. Sure. Fair enough. Yeah. And then the hard-coded factory default or easy-to-guess passwords really should be solved by the IoT devices, not by a third device that does this. But, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Honestly, I don't don't think the solution to the IoT mess is an extra IoT device that manages the security of all your other IoT devices. All right, in so, particular, if that means that all your i o t devices trust anything sent by this one i o t security device
0: yeah i mean I, like, I then it
1: becomes the single vector to taking over every i o t device
0: i could see like these uh like the these google homes or the uh, the echo the echo products trying to be that role maybe
1: well i can understand the echo product updating all amazon branded things and or even just amazon certified things but, okay yeah yeah <clears throat> okay mm Yeah, you know, the solution I would like to work toward is more of a toolkit for building IoT that has a bunch of this stuff that's done wrong, repeatedly done right. Mm. Like a secure update mechanism available open source under a BSD license. And everybody just uses this one that doesn't have all the common mistakes in it. And then they can patch their shit. Of course, We'll find a problem in it. We'll fix it, and they'll still be using the five-year-old one, and it won't really help. So
2: mm.
1: it only goes so far, but it's better than what they're doing now where everybody invents their own and does it wrong. Mm. That is true. Why anyway, if you have some brilliant idea, why not get $25,000? Yeah. Although if your idea is really that good, you can probably get a lot more a startup around it and get a lot more than <laughs> $25,000. But uh, yeah. maybe you start here, and that will
0: give you a little credibility maybe
1: maybe um, I, I don't know what the rules say that the, uh, the if you can run with it yeah. but i don't think so so mm.
0: anyway this free money. W- this one's definitely for further reading uh, uh after class but uh, this one sounded interesting ultrasounds can used can be used to de-anonymize tor users ultrasounds emitted by ads or javascript code hidden on a page accessed through the tor browser can de-anonymize tor users by making nearby phones or computers send identity beacons back to advertisers the attack model yeah. was brought so to life.: towards... the
1: FBI has a bug on your phone, uh, and then when you go via Tor, your laptop emits a sound you can't hear, but your phone can hear it, then the FBI knows that, hey, the person on tour on this website right now... Is this person. Is this, ...has this I can this see phone, how they'd use or, that.
0: Okay, all right. Like, I can see that could be useful. All right. A clever Facebook hack reveals private email addresses of any yeah. user?
1: Yes. So uh, uh, a researcher found a way to go to Facebook... Uh, pick any random person and find out what their email address is. He submitted it via the Facebook bug bounty program and made $5,000. Well, all right. There's another making a little bit of
0: money there. Uh, this, there's, there's obviously some, uh, some, some hype going for talks, but hackers, this is the register's headline, hackers could turn your smart meter into a bomb and blow your family to smithereens. That's literally the headline.
1: <laughs> uh, I did, So my electric meter, which is smart meter – Probably not. There's not really anything explosive. However, the gas meter might be able to do something weird, like let in more gas than I was asking for. Uh,
0: so this here, I guess maybe that might be what it is. They say the software vulnerability, uh, this different team has been looking into it. They're going to talk about it, I think, at the 33, 33rd. That was last weekend. Ah, so okay, so that's, that's where this came from. I see. They say the attacker who controls the meter also controls the software, allowing them to initially blow the meter up. That's what he said at the Chaos uh, Communications Congress uh, earlier this month. If the attacker could hack your meter, he could give access to all the devices connected to the meter. If the smart meter network is in its current state, it is uh, completely exposed to attacks. I guess. I guess there's something in there. I. I, I guess there's something in there with the fuse or something like that that he says could start a fl- could start a fire. But I suppose
1: uh, mine's on the outside of my house and surrounded by bricks, so maybe it would be okay. Seems but. like yeah, yeah. Well, uh, one of the problems with the, some of these smart meter systems is. Instead of trying to connect each one to the network, which would be very expensive, uh, they kind of daisy chain. So mine is connected to the network and the neighbor talks to mine and to the next neighbor over and over and over. And he goes a bunch of hops so that only like every 10th house actually needs to be connected to the network. And then, you know, 10 houses on either side or five houses on either side of me jump back to my house. Uh, Meaning that the meter at my neighbor's house has to somehow at least somewhat trust my meter. Uh, And so if you compromise them, it can mean it's very wormable.
0: All right. So this next one's from Schneier. A SQL injection attack is a legal – wait. A SQL injection attack is a legal company (laughs) name in the UK.
1: Oh, I see. So a company (laughs) just registered their company name in the UK as semicolon space drop table in quotes companies semicolon dash dash limited. All right. All right. They get the clever. They get the lulls for the week. They yes, get with the obligatory XKCD.
0: Uh, so this is, I'm sure, nothing to worry about. I guess New York City is uh, badgering Uber to get company data on where it's taking its users in New York. They want to piece together the full details of every trip you take. Several independent privacy experts have said this policy creates serious privacy risk. Hmm. I wonder why. That's kind of creepy. And, of course, Uber yeah. has that data, so they're going to eventually have to give it over to somebody. Mm. Do you hear about Adnauseum, Alan? You got. I banned. put it in the roundup. I, so. That was my. That was my clever transition, Alan. That was my. I was tossing it to you.
1: <laughs> I had never heard of it before today, though. I hadn't either. <laughs> so anyway, uh, there's this uh, Chrome extension called nauseum, and what it actually does uh, is hides every ad with a tracking cookie that it sees, but also simulates a click on it, so that oh. your the tracking data will be so muddled from you clicking basically clicking every ad uh, that it'll really mess up the tracking data. Plus, it they're because of fake clicks, advertisers are paying for these and not actually getting right. anything out of it. That's what's really going to uh, piss somebody off. So it's driving up the price of ads and and hurting the ad network. So uh, Google has kicked this ad out of the Chrome store and blocked even installing it manually. You can see why because. Google, as an advertising network, doesn't really like doesn't fake so ad clickers and so on. However, um, you know, the reason they cited from the... Um, an ad clicker is actually not against the terms of service of the Google Chrome App Store. Hmm. Um, that and surprises Google me. Chrome's reason for kicking the ad out was that it had purposes beyond the re- the stated one or something. You know, it, the the extension was doing something rather than what it said on the tin. Um, and so ad nauseum, as... Tried to repackage itself to explain better what exactly it's doing and trying to get back in the store and see what Google says. Yeah. Um, we'll see. I can understand if Google wants to kick them out, but if they do, they have to admit the reason why, not make one up.
0: So, I wonder if Firefox would have any problem. Is it on Firefox? It might already be
1: on Firefox, I suppose. Yeah. I think, uh, they, I think they do have a Firefox one, and, and you know, Mozilla doesn't necessarily have a dog in that particular fight. And exactly. They'd be okay with yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is, this is a classic. MongoDB databases was held for ransom by a mysterious, mysterious attacker do, 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 for 0. Um, 0.2 Bitcoin.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it turns out uh, at least 1,800 MongoDBs are out on the internet with no logins ah, Damn things. it! No. Not, not even a default password, but just don't even damn require it. one. No, stop it. So somebody made a bot that goes down, downloads all the data. Of course they did. And re- deletes it all. Yes. And replaces it with a table called a warning saying, hey, pay me my 0.2 bitcoins, which is about $200 right now, uh, and I'll give you your data back. It's like a public service. Yeah. Except apparently some US healthcare organization had 200,000 patient records of some kind in it. I'm not oh, sure exactly no. what data. Oh, no. I'm not sure what data, but... Um, yeah, it's like, that seems like a HIPAA violation, having it a MongoDB out on the internet with no, no login at all, let fine. alone a bad no, password. It's,
0: it's not worry about HIPAA, just blame the Russians. The Russians put it on the internet. It's fine, it's fine.
1: Right. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. Also, notice how Chris skipped a story because it was actually identical. You, you have the same link in here twice.
0: Yeah, well, see but see I smoothly skipped it so no one would have yeah, noticed. Yeah, but didn't I say don't anything. want them
1: to know that you didn't say. you
0: screwed <laughs> up. They should know. What? What? Oh, I put that Oh, I thought I thought we just both put the same story in. That's what I no, thought. No, you put the same one in twice. Oh, it was important. So important we should talk about it again. Actually, <laughs> yeah. instead of talking about that, you and I I think we're both speculating this would happen. Uh, no surprise. Verizon executives reportedly unsure whether the Yahoo deal will get done after all of the hack reports.
1: I would say it was a good opportunity for them to get it really cheap. Uh, you know, it, they can basically just lower the price enough until Yahoo says no, and then it's not their fault. Yeah, I suppose so. Okay, well, it's, uh,
0: maybe maybe they'll pay Verizon. <laughs> Just take us, please. Just take us. Basically, if they just throw in daycare for uh, Marissa, maybe they'll just go for it. Yeah, that's, uh, you can't. You can't. What are you gonna expect? Don't try this at home. Uh, uh, how not to use Etsy sudoers? Is that, is that what this is basically? This
1: is actually basically a war story. So, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, oh good. It's Automation with uh, sudo with not using vi sudo to edit the config file introduces syntax error, and now your uh, Ansible can't sudo in order to update your sudoer's file to fix the problem. Oh, boy.
0: <laughs> That's, that should be a good read.
1: Yeah. Uh, if you want to lock yourself out of 200 computers at once, you're going to need some
0: automation. <laughs> oh, this makes me laugh. Uh, for I think it's Forza Horizon 3 update. It accidentally published an unencrypted build of the game. Oops. <laughs> yep. Uh,
1: so some people who are updating the game suddenly found they were downloading 53 gigabytes. So I'm guessing this is not just... The actual release build, but some like developer stuff and yeah. uh, art assets, and probably every version of the texture other than one. Yeah. And, uh, possibly there could be some source code type stuff. Yeah, in there. I'm yeah. not sure. I would imagine, right? Uh, oh, wow. But yeah, they accidentally, one developer accidentally published uh, two or three versions newer of the game, uh, which basically spoiled a bunch of secret things they were working on. Uh, but also, anybody who played the game. Their save file has now been updated to the new version, and they can't go back to an old version. Oh, that sucks. So some of the... um they're encouraging people that, that happen to not to go back and start a fresh game and overwrite their save file. See, this is one of the things. I hate games where you don't control the save files yeah. and where they really don't version it. Yeah. It's like, if you're going to save for me, sure, but I want separate save files for at least the last 10 saves or something. Yeah. So that if something goes screwy, I can just go back one save instead of having to start over. Exactly. Absolutely. So
0: ThreatPost has four new normals for 2017, and I would argue these are Basically, more... Basically, these are predictions
1: for what 2017 is going to be about. Yeah, but I feel
0: like this is what 2016 was already about.
1: <laughs> well, a lot of, some of the IoT botnets didn't really take off yeah. until the end yeah. of 2016. Ransomware, though. That feels like that was pretty so solid. Anyway, their list is ransomware. We're going to see more than that. Yeah. We've seen a lot, but it's yeah. going to keep evolving. We've seen it recently start extending into TVs and stuff. Yeah, um, we have something about that in a bit. <clears throat> and then... IoT botnets, you know, if we thought the one with the video cameras or the one with the routers was big, just wait till the next one. <laughs> you know, you don't know what happens until somebody's fridge is attacking you. <laughs> or we or start getting phone calls. Is your fridge running? It's like, yes. It's like, well, it's denial of service attacking me, so unplug it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's the new joke. Yeah. <laughs> uh, bug bounties. Uh, this is a, a good thing on the list. Uh, we're gonna I agree. See even more bug bounty programs uh, because... It's a way to get researchers to consider telling the vendor rather than not, uh, but also a way to get people who want to do this. You know, you can make a living by doing bug bounties if you can do enough of them. You know what?
0: Actually, looking back at it now, 2016 was the year we saw even Apple start a series of bug
1: bounties. They're kind of doing their own thing. I don't know how. But also uh, we saw things like Hacker One, where you don't yes. have to try to run your own program. You can just farm that out. And then you get wraps uh, and a bit of a social network around it too. Mm-hmm. And then 2017 will also be the year of bug buying. This is where the government or bad guys or just anybody buy up the vulnerabilities. Don't you, so, don't you, know, you feel not like everybody is... participates in the bug bounties. If I find a really good exploit and the bug bounty for it from Facebook is $5,000, but, you know, the, some other national government will pay me many extra zeros on top of that, um, you know, I'm going to sell it to them. This has been uh, going on for years. Yes. Uh, So there's both. The government buying vulnerabilities uh, so that nobody will talk about them and they don't get fixed and the government can use them or the government buying exploits that somebody else found. Again, hoping that nobody else knows about it for a while so they continue to use them to exploit people. Um, Both of those happen and it means the bugs don't get fixed, which is bad. Uh, So, you know, there's been efforts to try to make the government stop doing this or be completely transparent about it Uh, and it'd be really good if, you know, the NSA had to have Microsoft fix any bug they find within a certain amount of time or something. I don't know. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting. It's a good read, and uh, it's up at Threat
0: Post if you guys want to check it out. Link in the show notes. Uh, a programmer has found a way to liberate
1: ransomware to Google Smart TVs. Remember, yeah. Although he didn't find it, he got LG to tell him, so it's
0: not. Yeah, is this the, this is sort of like a part two of a story that we was well, really a three part story. First part was ransomware on the television, and LG refused to help him reset it. Then he got a little publicity. LG capitulated, helped him reset it, and now he now is he, sort of how to
1: do it if it happens to you. All right, I love it. So uh, apparently this hack, not even the LG support people knew about uh, (laughs) previous to this, but basically if you hold the setting button and then hold the channel down, is it, uh, and then let go of the first button and then the second button. Uh, it will factory reset. And, the official uh, procedure,
0: with the TV powered off, place one finger on the settings symbol, then another finger on the channel down symbol, remove finger from settings, then from channel down, and navigate using volume keys to wipe data slash factory reset option. There you go. So if you get stuck with it, that's how you do it. Link in the so show notes. it seems
1: like this TV has a dual firmware type setup or something, uh, or the, in particular, this firmware is not persistent. But it actually, that kind of harkens back to the... Um, Schneier article we were talking about or, or just the, uh, the comments on the IoT FTC thing is that a lot of these devices unlike uh, higher end devices that say when you want to do a firmware update have two firmwares in them. So there's like the active one and inactive one and every time you update it overwrites the older of the two or some of them are just like it has the original, original, original one and then the one you keep updating such that if you know the power goes out in the middle of updating and you brick the firmware, it can boot off the old firmware enough to get you up and let you reflash again. Right. But some of these cheaper IoT devices are like, well, why spend money on two sets of flash when yeah. we have just one? <laughs> but it means if the power goes out or something goes wrong during the flashing and you've only half-written yeah. it, the device can't boot. Although, they really, they have a solution for that, too. They just don't bother patching them and updating them. Then they right. don't have that problem. It's like, um, <laughs> for example, my on Omega only has the one, but it has the ability for me to... Uh, Go into U-boot, uh, the bootloader, basically before it even boots off the firmware, and TFTP boot and do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them have that, but like on the the D-link or the TP-Link router I bought, I had to solder on my own serial port to, in order to get access right. to
0: it. And then the other issue too is uh, after a certain age, they will uh, like uh, they may not have anything to FTP into. So I have a couple of different devices that do that. They can self-check online. They have a little boot environment. They go. Well, no, this into. this
1: one's uh, TFT, like it. Pixie boots basically.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, so this is actually – these devices actually have separate firmware. They boot into that separate firmware, and then they connect out to an FTP server and download the image. Um, Same for my DJI Phantom.
1: Well, Uh, actually, most interestingly, my keyboard, the old one, the the Razer uh, Black Widow. Yeah. uh, When I started having problems with this, I actually found out that if you, like, hold – I forget which two keys, something in spacebar, as you plug in the USB – It will boot into a different mode where it's set up to receive firmware, and then you can flash firmware onto it to update the firmware in the keyboard. Kind of similar thing, except it's not reaching out to the internet to get it, it's just only then is it in a mode to receive firmware uh, from the computer. Uh, Interesting thing about that is it means it's slightly more protected from the, the idea that you know, a virus on your computer stashes itself in the firmware on your keyboard or something so it can be <laughs> you. Because it only accepts new firmware when you've booted it in a special mode and then you have to unplug it and plug it back in to get back into regular mode.
0: Uh, this is uh, – this is, I don't know. You tell me. For a surprisingly sick
1: silly- – the- Images to actually read the okay. story.
0: But. For a surprisingly cynical, evidence-seeking audience, how come y'all aren't calling out this sort of sloppy analysis? And he pulls it up and it's got a highlighted text here. He says, part of the evidence supporting Russian government involvement in the DNC and related hacks, including the uh, the ones in Germany and France German's TV. German
1: Bundestag is a uh,
0: police. Ah, uh, it stemmed from the assumption that x agent malware was exclusively developed and used by Fancy Bear. We now know that's false, and the source code has been obtained by others outside
1: of Russia. I think that's so a huge thing. Go to the second image. Okay. Uh, the other places, there's like just a random developer, uh, ESET, the antivirus company has managed to get the full source code for the Linux version of it. Huh. Yeah, so ESET was able to obtain the complete source code for X-Agent uh, for the Linux OS uh, with a compilation date of July 2015. So their copy maybe is not the newest, but they can they have the source code. They could make their own version of X-Agent, and then so it could be them. Or a hacker known as RUH8, a.k.a. Sean Townsend, uh, with the U- Ukrainian Cyber Alliance, has informed me that he has also obtained the source code for the X-Agent for Linux. If both a security company and a hacker collective have the X agent source code, then so do others. And attributions uh to say APT twenty eight or fancy bear or GRU based uh, solely upon the presumption that they're the only people using Xagent are therefore not provable. Yeah, that's that's huge, don't you think? Yeah. That's sort of that under
0: that sort of cuts out the support of the entire attribution to Russia. Right. And well, and
1: if you look at the was it Grizzly Step or whatever the – the report. I did. I read – yeah. Most of the Russians they pay sanctions against were people they were Ah. after for other things. Yes. Not even related to cyber anything. Right. And they didn't sanction Putin, which is maybe not
0: too surprising. But if they did say he was supposedly directed by the top. Yeah, the whole thing's pretty weak.
1: It's pretty disappointing. They also put out a report. So uh, the chairman, who made X-Agent? We know – that the Russians made X-Agent. Yeah. Or it was that at this Ukraine... point, they're not the only people that still have it.
0: Well, I, I, did, wasn't it you, the, a Ukrainian army member that made it, didn't you say, last week?
1: No, no, no. That was the software that X-Agent was implanted into. X-Agent oh, is the... Oh, right, 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 right. It went and... into that
0: app that, that was used to monitor... Yeah, they right, X-Agent
1: onto yep. his artillery app. Yeah, right. Uh, gotcha. So we know the Russians made X-Agent, but now they've been using it so much that antivirus companies have it random hackers right. have it other people have it right so the fact that they used x-agent doesn't automatically prove it was the original people who made it in fact it like you could oh, argue that hack was done with linux so therefore it was all torvalds right
0: you could argue that if you wanted to intentionally make it look like the russians you would intentionally use x-agent
1: just say, just saying that yeah out there. although you would just, just probably plant more obvious clues to just, just but frying in, some in bacon this, in this particular case If the reason you're saying it was the Russians is because they used XAgent and nobody else has it, that's obviously wrong.
0: Yeah. I think your Linux analogy is kind of good actually. Uh, Wow. That's that's a big deal. And Mm -hmm. uh, kind of to – so to bookend that, uh, it turns out – this is from The Hill – that the FBI never actually investigated any of the DNC servers themselves. They've just simply gone off of the report that the – I can't remember if it was FireEye or who it was – but it was you know they were hired by the DNC to look into this, so they just basically went off the report of the DNC contractor and didn't do any investigation on their own. And then when they, you know, the FBI specifically human Hod the longest about doing attribution. But how could yeah. they? Well they... what's
1: interesting, so uh, actually the the guy who tweeted the ex agent thing, had a different tweet the other day, and it was like. You know, why doesn't the FBI do do its own cyber intelligence or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. It's like 2015, FBI accidentally locks itself out of suspect's iPhone. 2016, FBI hires a company to hack into the iPhone for them. 2017, why does the FBI not do it themselves? It's like because they're hapless and they lock themselves out of stuff when they try.
0: They don't have the
1: expertise.
0: It was CrowdStrike. So CrowdStrike was hired by the DNC to investigate the hack and uh, the FBI just went with their
1: report. I well, guess – CrowdStrike was the, the people who identified Fancy Bear in this artillery would, thing
0: as well. I would say – maybe if the FBI doesn't have to investigate it themselves because that does rely right, – although you would hope they would have that expertise. But they, in can, the end, they can hire another contractor, a, an independent I guess contractor. In this
1: case, it's because there's not going to be necessarily a court case about it. But in general, the, the police have to get – You know, at least clones of the the original hard drives and give the DNC back cloned versions of those drives uh, as evidence. But because there's not necessarily going to be a trial here, I suppose they don't actually do that. But it just seems it feels like though when
0: you're making such grave, 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 grave accusations on the world stage against a world power, you'd really want to just maybe double check your work. Just maybe. Yeah, maybe it's an independent verification yeah. or something. Yeah, maybe spend a yeah. few less millions on cracking iPhones and th- yeah. kick a couple hundred bucks, a hundred thousand bucks over
1: but, to... But uh, um, the main reason uh, we haven't really dug into the whole DNC thing and so on in this show is the same reason Krebs hasn't. So if you go to Krebs' website, he has an article currently about why he hasn't really got into that mess. Um, what he say? That sounds interesting. There's not really any interesting reporting to do mm. because nobody has any more information than anybody else, so he can't right. really investigate. It. Everything and he's only just sides of doing officials. his own research, not right. just using other people's data. Good for him. Uh, but you know, no matter what you say, you're either going to be lumped in as you know, on one side or the other, the two, and it's not really going to go anywhere. Anyway, he has a good article about that, and, and I'm I'll, using I'll that as my excuse as well. I like that. I think that's a good call. Uh, all right. So uh, another tweet from the same gentleman, uh, the guru. Well, this is an old one, though. So this is an old Russian uh, spy story, and it's quite hilarious. Uh, but basically, uh, the Russians had the thing. So uh, back when it was still the Soviet Union uh, and they had, you know, they were spying on the U.S. from their embassy and so on in, in New York and so on, they had uh, a little like a cottage out uh on the near Washington, the Potomac River or whatever. And whenever they had anything electronic, any kind of spy gear, the rule was they had to like smash it and send the smash bits back <laughs> in the diplomatic pouch on a plane back to Russia. And uh, even if they wanted to buy something, like a tape recorder, they had a weird system where they'd buy it in New York or whatever and then ship it to Moscow and somebody else would buy one in like Paris and they would end up with each other's so that it would Mess up with, you know, uh, they couldn't be tricked into buying one that the FBI had bugged, and use you know, the FBI would end up bugging some other random thing. Hmm. Although in the end, it's like, wouldn't the Russians want one that make sure that none of them were bugged? But anyway, that was one of their security procedures. Anyway, um, but all the generals that got to go to this little cottage or whatever uh, always wanted to go out on the river on a boat, but they never, they they Russians wouldn't buy a boat for the generals to go, you know, partying or whatever. Uh, but eventually, uh, the one intelligence officer convinced him to buy a boat so he could drive out into the middle of the river or the, or the ocean there and dump electronics into the river to destroy them because it was costing them, uh, like $200 a pound or whatever to ship the broken electronics back to Russia for destruction. Damn. Anyway, it's a really interesting story. It's a couple of pages long, so we don't want to read the whole thing, but uh, it's definitely worth checking out because it's quite funny. I love that. I'm going to follow this guy on Twitter. This
0: is a great – I assume you must be following him for a while. Yeah. I've followed. Uh, what's the What's the story about the Barbie typewriter? What kind of nightmare machine is this, Alan?
1: <laughs> so this is a, an old-fashioned typewriter. It's an electronic one, but basically you put taper in it and you type and it makes uh, like letters on paper. Um, but it's basically uh, a company in like Slovenia, was it? I forget what the name uh uh, I forget which country, but uh, an Eastern European country made this electronic typewriter yeah, and something. was selling it. And then the Mattel people got wind of it and they basically changed it. If you look at the picture, you see the one that's kind of like gray with the blue knobs. So they had made this little electronic typewriter kind of toyish thing. Uh, and then they sold it to Mattel and Mattel like Barbieized it. But they kept the same circuit boards and, and firmware inside of it. Oh, interesting. And it turns out that there's a function built into it to do encryption so if you hit shift lock one two three or four no yeah you type a message in and encrypted message comes out and then somebody else with this typewriter sets to the same key types the encrypted message and it will type out on the typewriter the decrypted message
0: you're telling me this this barbie typewriter has a badass encryption decryption system built into it
1: I wouldn't say badass is okay. four static keys. I still uh, think that's it, pretty cool, dude. It's fairly substitution based, but yes, I think that's uh, actually it, it great. A bit. It actually shows <laughs> what the algorithm is and so on.
0: But. No, that is funny. Look, they have multiple
1: models. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. So it's pretty simple, but that's pretty so great. How you, yeah. So you just shift lock one two three four for encrypting five six seven eight for decrypting, and those correspond to the four different keys, or you know. Uh, lock shift 12 to turn off the encryption. But if you scroll down a little bit, you'll see uh, you can see that you know when you type an A it, with key 1, it prints I. Yeah. Uh, or if God, it's key 2, cool. it prints a T and so on. So the numbers, a 0 becomes a 5 or a 6 or a 7 or 8, depending on the key. So the numbers aren't uh, encrypted very well, but I tell you what, uh, sometimes a girl's just got to make sure her communications are private. So yeah. the, the Mattel decided that uh, little girls wouldn't be that interested in secret messages. It's like, really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, encrypt your diary and your little brother can read it or whatever. Sh- but, uh, I'm not going to lie. I kind like, of so want one of these typewriters the right now. The version never, never mentioned the, the encryption feature at all. But if you happen to have one, because it's the same as the original version, it works.
0: I kind of want one.
1: That's just That's, that's just sort of
0: great. You know, it's my daughter Abby's birthday today. Uh, this would have been a good gift.
1: Okay. I don't know how hard these are to come by nowadays. I bet they're
0: going to become a lot harder now that I that imagine out. I bet they're
1: relatively robust. You know, it's a typewriter. But yeah,
0: yeah. I kind of just button, want a typewriter. Yeah. I have no idea what I'd use it for. Now I kind of want one. My grandpa used to have this really cool one in a suitcase. You'd open it up and have the chunk, chunk, chunk levers, and if you type too fast, cool. it would jam.
1: Yes, but you uh, remember when we talked about the – the Russians building the typewriters yes. so they could scan yes. people. That was
0: such a great story. That was that's a classic time, and you know maybe one day we'll hear
1: stories about stuff that they did today. Uh, I wanted to maybe well, – You know, the Grug's been extracting a bunch of those. I don't know where he gets it, but uh, it's been it's good, good stuff. stuff. So I'm check gonna. His feed. I am going to. There's uh, cool stuff in there. So why not? And the roundup for episode three
0: hundred with uh, another kind of retro thing. Remember, we used to do the Bitcoin Blaster on a regular basis on this show. Yep. Well, let's give Bitcoin one last mention in our for our during our reign. Uh, over the last few days, it's been flirting over one thousand as we record right now. It's at nine hundred ninety-eight dollars and ninety cents. Not that I'm watching, and uh, it has been bouncing all around. Got up to eleven eleven hundred dollars recently so it's back up the bitcoin
1: rally is back and was down to 400 dollars. and yeah it's all yeah. over the place yeah i think actually uh, today it got as low as 902 for with a bit the, with the how long it's been around we kind of expected it to get more stable and it really hasn't yeah There's still far too much speculation yeah
0: i my long term for bitcoin is not as out as positive as it used to be but my short term for bitcoin uh has been i have used this opportunity while the while the bitcoin is high to just have more purchasing power to pick up a couple don't, of things. Don't remind I know. me about the fact that I had I 40 bitcoins. I know. Remember when my exchange got hacked? Remember that? That happened on the show. I know. You lost... Like a lot. That lost. was your fault. Why I mean know. Who's
1: putting your coins in, like, here, random person, hold my coins I for know.
0: me. You know, well, the thing was is we, we had a lot of people back then asking about, about the service, and I thought, well, I'll try it out for a little while, and that's what happened. And I, I want to say it was... It might have been i 'm probably wrong, but it might have been somewhere up the uh, somewhere around forty forty bitcoins that got stolen it was It was a lot of bitcoin it's rough it 's rough but uh, it 's been interesting watching it again and it sort of reminded me of the old days of the tech snap program but that is our last roundup story, Mr. Jude, yep, and uh, that brings us to the end of episode three hundred. Thank you, everybody, for watching this show and hanging out with us. Please stay subscribed. Please keep checking and uh, give uh, Wes and Dan uh, a chance and see how they do and come back every single week and uh, give them your uh, your feedback, your comments, and your support. We very much appreciate it. And uh, if you'd like, we'd also appreciate you sharing this episode with a friend and help spread the word about TechSnap and give them a nice boost. Is there anything else we need to mention before we get out
1: of here? Uh, no. I think okay. we've... Uh Come to an end of uh, quite an era.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Alan, for all yes, the extremely yes. hard work and the great, uh, awesome, unbreakable dedication that you had to this show. Uh, I yeah, I appreciate it, and I know the audience really so
1: appreciates so many it. Thursdays. Yeah,
0: yeah, uh, and of course you can keep you know, the hoops I've wrapped my life through to make sure that Thursday I know. stayed free. You you really don't you really you really can can't quite conceive what it what kind of commitment it is. You think well once a week is not a big deal, but you so much, like I've gone through, I've gone through children births. I've gone mm-hmm. through divorce. I've moved around like so much has happened in, in that six years. And it means making sure that every day, every Thursday, I carve out a little bit of oil, a lot of bit of time for this show, uh, regardless of what's going on. And that's a massive commitment.
1: So I know we all really appreciate it. And you know, people, it's, it's one of those things about finding the time, but yeah, you know, um, yeah and just, people, people kept you know i think that's the people kept tuning in i mean i think it really helped help to the well, success it, of the show one of the reasons for the success is the fact that you could reliably tell that the show is always going to be there whereas mm-hmm. other you know <clears throat> certain other people's podcasts that have tried to start and then it's like well we we need this week off and no next yeah. week it'll be on a different day and then yeah. we're just going to be off for a couple of months and then maybe we'll be back and yeah it's like yeah that's that's not the same thing you're not doing it right that's rough yeah, that's yeah. rough.
0: It's been – yeah, consistency is important. Um, so uh, thank you, everybody. I mean I th- we really appreciate you guys tuning in. Don't forget you can keep following Alan on BSD now. You can follow Just, him on Twitter. And, you know, TechSnap's that over.
1: Tune in next week. There will be yeah. a whole show.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I, why don't I sign it off with that? I usually say we'll see you next week. But uh, instead what I'll say is thanks so much for tuning in this week's episode of Snap And we will see you right back here next week.